The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, we're back after a week of hiatus. Uh, we're back for episode, I believe, 58 now of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. And uh, I'm your host, Lee Russell. I'm joined by my stalwart co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm actually awake today, so we can record. Uh, yeah, I, I fell asleep last night before or last week before we could record. And I don't mind admitting that to our dozens of listeners that uh, I was... Exhausted at uh, ten thirty at night, collapsed into a state of sleep, much like a small child. So, mm-hmm. but you're a working man now, so you have an excuse, and um, it's actually probably for the best because if anyone listened to um, the little intermission episode I did, and an alarming amount of people actually did listen to it, uh, last I was week. one of them. I was one of them. <laughs> it was. Uh, it, I'm it, holding you back, Lee. I mean, I'm, I'm just. Why did you? Why did you even bother inviting me on to begin with? So, no. Uh, first off, it was terrible. My voice sounded terrible. And it's probably a good thing we didn't record last week because I I was still suffering from a, a cold. So every 30 seconds or so, I was uh, trying to snuffle back about 30 pounds of snot in my nose. Uh, if, if you only saw the amount of edits I did on that half-hour episode, you'd be amazed. Uh, we're going to be talking about two very interesting semi-noir uh, sort of crime films. Uh, they're definitely heavy noir uh, influences in both of them, but you can also sort of argue they're also horror films uh, straight up to some degree. Of course, we're going to be talking about The Lodger from 1944 and 1945's Hangover Square. And after this, we're going to be doing Inherent Vice, and that'll be the uh, cap off of our sort of initial look into uh, noir films and crime films. And uh, we'll be getting into maybe some sci-fi and then uh, jumping over to some sex comedies uh, for the next little while. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to that, too. That'll be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, me too. It's uh, it's been really fun doing uh, doing the noir films, but it's also like okay, time to time to move on. Let's do something a little different, um, you know. But I rewatched both of these films today, and not to jump ahead, but um, it's interesting how much because we kind of started with M, not quite, you know, because mm-hmm. that was forty nine, and then we did Dawn of the Dead. So M was kind of like the the movie that we watched. It was kind of like oh, let's do some crime films, let's do some noir, and both of these films kind of draw heavily from that film. Yeah. Um, and then when you uh, think about Inherent Vice, that clearly draws heavily from The Long Goodbye, Altman's mm-hmm. Long Goodbye, um, which was the first film in our... So it actually, there's a little bit of a, a nice symmetry that we've uh, kind of inadvertently created here. So. Yeah, just the films we've picked kind of have opened our eyes to uh, some connections between stuff that we probably didn't even know beforehand. Uh, it's It's been a lot of fun. It's, it's actually been a lot of fun uh, just sort of exploring these films and picking up I, on stuff. I have a ton of noir films that I've just I've just been like downloading, so I can uh, watch them later. And uh, I'll uh, if I run across anything that's really really special, I'll, I'll definitely throw it on for the next uh, next time we do a uh, something like this. Because I think I would love to do more noir films uh, down the mm-hmm. line. But I think the uh, the audience might be a little tired of listening to us talk about noir yeah. films. But uh, you know, <laughs> I, I you know I'm I'm just kind of like I don't know. I could do these all the time. <laughs> like I could just do a noir podcast, honestly. 
Yeah, um, we yeah we've been joking about how we could just keep going on and on and just like start it into a noir podcast totally and uh, yeah we, we we probably could but we're not going to do that. Paul would Paul would never forgive us really. That, that's no, he, the reason. You know, he would he would come with a knife and like stab us in the heart, and you know he would. You know? Yeah. Although I although I really do wish he had uh, been able to show up for this one because this was these were two noir films that he would have definitely been into. So uh, yeah, I, I hope hopefully he'll get a chance to see them at some point and uh, he can give us his thoughts at that point. Yeah, Paul Paul is um, MIA at the moment. Anyone who is who is wondering, uh, we we've put his picture out on a milk carton. So uh, <laughs> I've wrapped his body in a sheet and thrown it in a burning pyre. <laughs> Ooh foreshadowing <laughs> so yeah we'll we'll, we'll uh, get to our films here in a little while but uh we do have quite a bit of housekeeping to take care of so uh first thing i want to mention uh thanks to my sh- uh, friend jim sear he brought to my attention the fact that the last few episodes we've done the mp3 file the raw mp3 file if you downloaded it from itunes has been really big and the reason that was is because I am, and Daniel can attest to this, I'm a ham-fisted Luddite who is backwards and everything I do is just fucking ridiculous the way I uh, produce this podcast. For the most part, what I do is I build the YouTube version of this podcast first. I'm just not so savvy with Audacity where I can just build the entire MP3 file in Audacity and make it look good. Uh, Eventually I'll get there, but for the most part, what I do is I build the uh, YouTube version first, and then I strip the audio off that, and then I uh, upload that to our Podbean site. So what I was doing for the last little while was I was stripping the audio of this new program I downloaded, and uh, I didn't realize that I was uh, using the incorrect MP3 format to download from. So I was using a I guess it's called original MP3, which is like the most high quality MP3 you can have. <laughs> so uh, yeah, all all these uh, episodes were like 200 fucking megs uh, or more megabytes or more. So anyone who is experiencing problems with that, I apologize because uh, Jim was nice enough to point out that he was downloading our uh, MP3s from iTunes and they were filling up his phone. <laughs> so. <laughs> So uh, I looked into the program. I can see I have other options, so I will downgrade it. We're, we're not exactly the most high-quality audio out there anyway, so it won't be a big problem. Um, I apologize if that was a problem for anyone listening that way. But thanks, Jim, for pointing that out, because otherwise I never would have fucking caught it. I just I don't pay attention to shit like that all too often. So I, I, I think uh, I, I did notice that, but I'm also uh, just didn't care because I do download the MP3s directly and I'm like, yeah, Lee could probably cut down on the, the quality just a little bit here, but uh, you know, who am I to, who am I to judge? You know, you, yeah. you do your thing. Like, you know, it's, it's fine. That's great. You just, you just, you just let me fucking crash and burn without saying anything. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Well, um, you know, a decent quality MP3 is about a megabyte a minute, you know, and so a 200, you know, a four-hour podcast should be about 200 megabytes, honestly. So some of them, some of them are deservedly that size. <laughs> well, we we've been speculating that once we get to like Day of the Dead or Night of the Living Dead, it'll be, end up being a fucking four-hour podcast. But uh, oh man! And speaking of that, I want to mention we we got two uh, really nice shoutouts uh, in the last uh, week from two podcasts. Uh, the guys at Slaughter Film, uh, although they didn't shout us out on the air, they actually showed it us out on their uh, show notes. Uh, they did an episode on Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. And of course, uh, Slaughter Film, who just have this knack for making this incredibly casual 
uh, podcast that uh, at the same time is incredibly concise and uh, keeps their time restraints uh, locked down very well. They managed to talk about Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead with less time than we did, uh, hour and a half for both films. And they managed to cover a lot of the same stuff we covered on Dawn in almost three hours. Uh, <laughs> Maybe if we stopped drinking while we record, we could uh, do similar similar things, you know. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. But, but why? Uh, but why bother? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't really want to stop drinking. So I like. I like to think that we give quantity over quality on this show. Yeah, but they they did a really great job, by the way. Um, I, I will link the episode in the show notes. Uh, it's an enjoyable episode, and uh, Forrest and uh, Corey are both awesome. Just enjoyable to listen to both of them, and they they covered both Dawn and Day that did really really well. Um, they also just re- recently did one of their uh, Slaughter Film uh, Netflix sort of commentary nights, hangouts that they do every once in a while. And they did it for the new Pee Wee Herman film, uh, Pee Wee's Big Holiday that's on Netflix, I guess. I'm, I'm not necessarily a big Pee Wee Herman fan, but it, I actually did watch their uh, thing and watch the film with it. And uh, it's enjoyable. They always do a really good commentary because they were basically just drinking tequila and, and, and watching the film. So, uh, you know, that, that sounds like the way to watch the film really. Um, you yeah. Know, uh, <laughs> one day I, I'm not, I'm actually, I haven't seen any of the Pee Wee Herman stuff in long enough that I'm just going to kind of let that go. But, uh, you know, one day it might be interesting to do Pee Wee's Big Adventure, just uh, mm. like film series or something, you know. If if we did like a Tim Burton month or something like that, right? Yeah, that would be a way to go. We have we have too many planned movies already <laughs> to yeah. ever think about doing a Tim Burton month. <laughs> we also got a nice little shout out from uh, Pex Lives, their latest episode. Long fucking episode, by the way. They started off talking about Stephen King. Uh, movie mm-hmm. adaptations. They they moved on to uh, finally talking about, uh, I guess it was Terror of the Autons, the Doctor Who episode. In between that, they're basically talking about the uh, horrors of capitalism gone awry. And <laughs> it sounds like Pikes lives uh, in a, to a T. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. But they but they, at one point they actually did mention us, and uh, so. Uh... Thank you very much. Uh, I was actually just totally surprised. I was at work listening to the episode, and all of a sudden, oh, by the way, the excellent podcast, uh, they must be destroyed on site. And I was like, oh, you you wonderful, beautiful fucker, you. Yeah, yeah that, that's uh, that's James Murphy, mm-hmm. who um, you know is, has become a, a big fan of ours, and uh, whom I spoke to last night, actually. And uh, you know, he was going to put that out, but I doubt it's going to happen, because uh, if you think we get drunk on this podcast, uh, <laughs> this was... Uh, this was a very, uh, you know, I, I, I'm only going to say is James, I have that audio saved and I now have blackmail material. So um, just keep the money coming. You know. I saw some allusions to that on Twitter. Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a good time. James and I, you know, no, um, it, it was a very fun conversation, but uh, it was definitely, uh, I got, I, it was very clear about halfway through that James is not actually going to release this as a podcast. So. <laughs> right on. We do have a few comments here. Most of these are basically pertaining to our uh, Eddie Coyle Zero Effect uh, episode that we did two weeks ago. Uh, first off, Mike Murphy from Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. He said, continuing this trend of talking about excretions from uh, the uh, anal cavity, which is becoming an alarming theme through both of our podcasts, I guess. Uh, he said, for the record, I didn't take issue with the anal leakage. That was Mark. I think I said it was unfair of him to fail the film due to one quick scene with poop in it. 
which I didn't see due to the fact uh, that he was using the fast-forward button. How this spills, no pun intended, over into another show, and why we're still mentioning it is beyond me. Uh, it might be one of those touchstone moments in podcast history. Only time will tell. And he said, good episode, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, I... Uh... <laughs> For me, I, I I agree that Mike was not the one uh, who was uh, he he was defending uh, the, the anal sex scene at least kind of going like really you're gonna like he had he had the same uh, bone that I did to pick with his own show so you know I uh, I just I just uh, thought it was amusing to uh, to to actually go and watch the scene and go like how bad is this really and it's it's really I mean it's it's ridiculous to even like care that much about it so uh, but yeah no. Uh, that's that's all I'm going to say about anal leakage, at least for now. Yeah. Maybe maybe down the line, you know, we'll see. Uh, we we need to really put a fucking uh, cap on that that subject. We should we just should not put, mention anal leakage for another couple of years, really. Put a cap on anal leakage. Is that the plan? Put a plug like, in just, it. Yeah. Just plug it all up and uh, make sure there's no leakage. You know. <laughs> yes. Uh, our friend Jack Graham, being the the negative Nelly that he is, uh, said, I can't say I was impressed by either of this week's movies myself. Zero Effect had some great ideas in it, but I don't think any of them really worked. He said Kim Dickens was the best thing in it, but it was like she was in a different movie to everyone else. Yeah. I, I, I've been thinking about this since I read that comment, and, you know, I, I don't even think I disagree with, with Jack on that. that uh, I think that that's the point, is that Kim Dickens is giving the kind of a nuanced kind of um, grounded real performance and that um, to a degree, what we're seeing with Daryl zero at the beginning of the film is that he's kind of performing this eccentricity mm. and that as he continues his relationship with Gloria, he um, becomes more grounded himself. And you even see it in one of his, one of the final lines that he has in the film when he's talking to her on the phone, he has the, you know, he, he tries to say one of these zero esque uh, aphorisms and then like corrects himself like, Oh no, I, I got, you know, yeah. I got sloppy. And um, I think that that's a problematic trope in itself. And we could, you know, certainly kind of talk about what that means, but I don't think that that's unintentional by the, by the film. Um, yeah, it, it is. It, I mean, it is a weird film and it is a, a kind of, I, I understand that the film didn't work for Jack um, because it's, it's kind of a uh, messing with tone is one of the toughest things to do and, you know, kind of narrative art. But uh, I, I see his critique, but I, and I, and I understand it, but I don't agree with it. I, I still think the film basically works. And I, and as far as um, Eddie Coyle goes, I, I think we both kind of agreed. There was definitely some pacing issues and flaws in that one. Like there, there, there's a lot of in, in that film that doesn't necessarily, um, translate very well to modern moody movie audiences um and it is a really slow movie in a lot of ways i, I suspect that one is one where um played better in 74 than it does mm-hmm. or differently anyway and i don't think that i mean i think jack is certainly you know kind of cognizant of that i think that um some of the dramatic tension is out of it um i think that maybe we just <laughs> forgave it a little bit more than he did you know and um, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that works really works i think but there's a lot of it that just kind of doesn't Yeah, yeah. Uh, Our friend Stuart Balk from the Midnight Movie Cowboys said, uh, excellent episode, guys. I had never heard of either of these films, and now I really want to see them both. And damn you, Daniel, for talking about Deadwood. Now I have to rewatch that masterpiece of the series again. Well, uh, you're welcome. (laughs) <laughs> um, for for getting to rewatch Deadwood, you know that's never a that's never a bad thing, uh, in my opinion. And uh, hey, let's do a Deadwood podcast. Who wants to do a Deadwood podcast with me? I don't. Apparently, that's <laughs> what I do is I just start collecting podcasts. 
yeah, I, I, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think I saw a couple episodes of that, and uh, the only the only charm I get from it is that one of the characters' names like Swearaging or Swearinger, Swearinger. Yeah, something like that. I'm surprised uh, you didn't get anything out of it. Like, like that, that's a great show. Know. That's a brilliant I, show. I no, I liked it, but it's just like I've seen all this in about the it's... million fucking westerns I've seen. It's it's a film that or it's a TV series that definitely needs a few. I mean, it kind of plays on people not necessarily knowing what kind of modern westerns or, or kind of revisionist westerns did, um, and kind of expecting it to be a little bit more generic. Um, once you get six or seven episodes in it, and particularly in the second season, it really becomes a much richer experience. It's really about the community more so than it's about like any individual character. Um, but I think if you're if you're not on board with Strange and you know from the beginning, you're you're kind of not gonna uh, go for the series. You know, it's it's amazing how much of that performance was uh, it uh, prefigures uh, Daniel Day Lewis and There Will Be Blood. I think in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, there, yeah. there's a lot of uh, kind of similarities between those two. And uh, sorry, I'm completely not talking about anything that we're <laughs> talking about today. No, but but uh, I, uh... I really like Deadwood, and I and I think you should give it another shot sometime. Yeah, I, I probably will. I mean, I I am a big Western fan. Like I'm a major fucking Western fan, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily get into it so much is like the same reason like i don't really get into uh the walking dead so much because i've just seen so many fucking zombie movies and stuff and i watched episodes of it and it just never really connected with me as being anything interesting right yeah i think the well i think that there is a significant quality difference between the walking dead and, and deadwood personally but um i can i definitely see that i mean and part of the issue that i have with a lot of stuff uh, particularly kind of sci-fi stuff is that i grew up reading the 1940s and 1950s, you know, kind of science fiction classics. And there's very little that like people think is interesting and like yeah. science fiction television that wasn't done better in a story in 1943, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um, it, it is kind of difficult. I mean, we all kind of bring our own perspectives and backgrounds to these things. And uh, yeah, there's no judgment about like not liking something. I don't think, yeah. I don't think we should ever feel like you should feel bad for liking or not liking a particular uh, piece of art. What's interesting is being able to talk about it and then justify it, you know? Yeah. Like, um, you know, Jack, I, even though Jack can't stand Jess Franco, even I don't even know if he's seen the uh, the two the two films that I think are actually quite good from Jess Franco. I don't I don't know if he's even seen them. But well, he did he not say that Soledad Miranda was the only thing worth talking about when when it comes to Franco? Yeah, pretty much. He, he was like, you know, you can be a fan of Soledad Miranda and just uh, kind of kind of shit on Franco at the same time. And I'm like, oh, I'm a little bit more nuanced than that. But uh, you know, Jack is allowed to be wrong. We're still friends. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I kind of wonder if he's ever seen uh, Franco's version of Dracula with Christopher Lee, because uh, that's actually quite an interesting film. I've not seen that, but now apparently I do. (laughs) Uh, Because it's probably one of the more, um, in a lot of ways, one of probably one of the more solid adaptations of Dracula that's ever been put out there. Yeah, well, that's that's awesome. I'll now now I have to kind of seek that out and, and give it a shot. Yeah. But it probably doesn't have lesbian vampires in it, you know, and that's no, that's I don't, so I don't, key yeah, I don't recall any, I don't recall any lesbian vampires or anyone being killed in ecstasy. So no, uh, apparently, uh, this isn't something I need to. Uh, <laughs> <seek out. laughs> Last comment here uh, from our friend Cameron Sullivan, who's uh, on the Facebook group. We have a Facebook group, by the way. Uh, they must be destroyed. So, have you heard of it, Daniel? No, I haven't. Really? We have a Facebook group? 
We have a Facebook group. It's, it's, it is the single best way to get in contact with us. Leave questions, comments, and suggestions. They wow. must be destroyed on site on Facebook. So, so Mark Zuckerberg did something right, finally. Well, I don't know how much he had to do with it anyway. He probably just sat back and collected the check while a bunch of programmer geeks did the actual Facebook. So, you know. That, um, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, so those programmer geeks. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but Cameron uh, says... Eddie Coyle still holds up for me, but it's a slow burn, and nowadays patients will be tested on half of the older neo-noirs from the 70s. Remember getting so annoyed when people were raving about 2010's The Town, and I was like, have you ever seen Heat or Friends of Eddie Coyle? Uh, that's that's a good comment. Uh, I agree with that because a, a lot of people, and I guess it's, you know, the younger people, and I don't want to sound like a fucking disgruntled old man now saying, oh, you younger kids don't know shit. But, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people who, you know, they're at the age right now. They're maybe in their early 20s or whatever, and they haven't watched a lot of older movies. So their only reference is, like, stuff like The Town. You know, that's probably the only Boston crime film they've ever seen. So they've probably never heard of Eddie Coyle. I never heard of Eddie Coyle until you told me about it. And I'm, you know, I... Mm -hmm. You can't blame people. This goes back to the same issue. You can't blame people for being ignorant. There are tons of things I am blatantly ignorant about that I run into all the time. It's how you respond to that ignorance, you know, Um, and, you know, kind of it's (laughs) I I will tell you there's an anecdote where um, I actually worked with a guy who is uh, 23 and we were talking at work and I said, oh, I. I have a couple podcasts and I do a Dr. Who podcast and then I do this old movie podcast and I kind of, and he just did not understand the idea of why you would do a podcast about old movies. Just didn't <laughs> get it. Like why, why would you do a podcast about old movies as opposed to like, like what's the, like, like didn't understand like, like film as an artistic medium and people would like to kind of talk about themes and ideas and stuff. Like the only reason to talk about something on a podcast for him you know, and I'm interpreting, I mean, he's a very, very nice guy. I like working with him. There's no, but it was like, he just did not get the concept that like people might find value in movies that were older than like two or three years ago. Just like, don't get the, just didn't get the concept. Why, why would you talk about old books? Why would you read old books and talk about them? There are lots of people who kind of feel that way. You know, I mean, th- there is this, there is this uh, kind of a, kind of a, the, the, uh, the, the fallacy of newness, you know, that, that, that only what's new is really, is really worthwhile or valid. And, uh, you know, getting out of that mindset is, is part of, I think part of what I like to try to do on this, on this show is to kind of, you know, go back and look at some old stuff. I mean, I just, um, yeah, it's just, it, it just kind of became this, like, uh, it was a moment I'm like, Oh, I, I, I just, I don't get that perspective, but I, I mean, I, I understand it, but it's so like, but, but I feel like the same thing where people would say, well, you know, John Wayne did this in 1953. So why should I care about something in 2016 that does, you know, um, it, it is sort of the same, uh, the same mistake just done in the opposite it, way. It, it does go both ways to a certain degree. I, 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 I agree with that, but um, that, that sort of goes with that uh, sort of um, snobby attitude of all remakes are useless and pointless, where it's not true because there's definitely a lot of remakes that sort of expand upon the original idea and uh, explore new avenues, and that's incredibly useful. I mean, there's plenty of shitty remakes out there as well that don't do shit, but I mean, it's always I think it's always better to look into the past and to see where these things came from and to talk about it and to explore those ideas uh, and see how they uh, how they translate in a modern context. But if if all you're doing is absorbing modern stuff and not looking 
looking back. I don't think you have a frame uh, reference for context or anything. I don't think you have. I don't think you can intelligently talk about the art if if you if you all you're going on is the 2009 version of the Lodger. For fuck's sakes, I don't think you. I don't think you have any real context of uh, the original story and the value of the original story. And I want to strangle your friend at work. I just want to say. Uh, <laughs> well, you, he's a nice guy. You should not want to strangle him. Uh, okay. But you know, he's uh, he's he's definitely uh, he he see he sees things differently. And it's just a uh, you know. I'm just, I just strangle him. He might listen to this podcast. So I'm, I'm you know we're we're going to be we're going to be nice. Can I just strangle him a little bit? Not not kill him with with a thuggy cord, yeah, with a thuggy cord, of course, and and just get him to the point where he passes out enough to have some sort of euphoric, uh, sort of epiphany where he finally realizes that there are, is value in old movies. Let's 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 just sit him down and show him Hangover Square instead, and and, and kind of go from there. Okay, well we'll go your way this time. Okay, this time. Okay, uh, <laughs> this time. <laughs> um. The other thing from uh, Cameron Sullivan, I, w- I was talking to him actually on a post in uh, uh, on a thread in Midnight Movie Cowboys uh, Facebook group where we were just sort of discussing the new uh, Magnificent Seven remake that's coming out with uh, Denzel Washington. And uh, there's, there's this like really um, diverse ethnic cast in this new mm-hmm. one. And I was I was kind of discussing with him where I felt like, okay, that's cool. that's That's all right. But at the same time, it kind of felt unauthentic to a certain degree because the idea that you would have uh, a bunch of white guys with uh, a black cowboy and an Asian cowboy and stuff like that kind of stretching it a little bit for the time period as, as far as being uh, kind of authentic. We, we moved on to um, actually genre mashups. We were talking about Red Sun with uh, Charles mm-hmm. Bronson and Toshiro Mifune. And he suggested that we do an episode sometime where we basically just talk about our favorite sort of genre mash- mashups like Red Sun and stuff like that. So yeah. um, no, that sounds, yeah, I'd be down for that. Yeah. Uh, lots of, lots of good stuff there. You know? Yeah. So um, I'm actually just going to sort of put it out there to uh, our listeners uh, on on the Facebook group and stuff. If you have any like sort of suggestions for like genre mashups that you want us to sort of talk about uh, and just sort of jog our memory too, because I was trying to think of stuff and I was like, I was having a little hard time thinking about it. So I mean, uh, obviously, you know, for me, an obvious one would be like Shaun of the Dead, for instance, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is, you know, obviously zombie romantic comedy the zom rom yeah. um that's just one of those uh real classics for me um you know but it's it's hard like kind of you put me on the spot i'm like now now what's what's the, you know what's a <laughs> what's a really great one you know yeah um oh tampopo tampopo is one of my favorite uh because that's a uh that's a essentially it's a western <laughs> it's a a western hero goes around and finds the greatest noodle shop in existence Oh. Um, and it's in it's uh, set in uh, Japan, so uh, it's a uh, uh, basically a sort of a John Wayne Western, but you know set in noodle restaurants, and it's an, intentionally a comedy. I think it was produced by Kurosawa. Um, I oh, could really? be mistaken on that. Um, this is uh, from uh, I think eighty like eighty six or eighty seven something like that. So, uh, but I I haven't seen the film in, in almost twenty years now, but it's 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 hold a, a very strong place in my memory. And I keep thinking I need to revisit it, so maybe we need to cover that on the show at some point. Nice, but, uh, yeah, I'd be up for that. Yeah. All right, uh, well, well, thanks, uh, Cameron. We'll, we'll uh, 
take that under advisement and try to come up with something at some point. Uh, so it sounds like a good little sort of break episode between uh, our, our little series uh, that we do. So uh, that, that'll be fun. So I think we can move on now to anything we've watched in the last while. I'm going to forego talking about anything because uh, I think the episode is long enough as it is, but I know you have something you want to talk about, Daniel, so uh, go into it. Sure. I, I only saw one, and um, that uh, I actually saw The Seven-Year Itch for the first time. Um, oh, yeah. on Netflix right now. Um, somehow I've just avoided watching it. It's not It's not anything. Uh, I don't have an issue with it. I just, you know, somehow I'd uh, never seen it. I was looking for something kind of... Uh, mindless and fun that I could put on. And I'm like, Oh, seven year itch, watch the Marilyn Monroe, be adorable. Um, <laughs> well, this is a film that, you know, seeing it now, I'm kind of like it. It's definitely not the, uh, for me, it doesn't hold up. I think as well as, as I would have liked it to. Um, but man, uh, Billy Wilder, we need to do some Billy Wilder films on this show because he's such a, such an interesting filmmaker. He kind of has this way of both, uh, exploring this kind of, uh, middle-class, middle-aged male, American male, um, you know, kind of libido and uh, kind of interrogating those values at the same time and doing it within the confines of a kind of silly comedy. But uh, it's, it's kind of like for me, the, there are two other Billy Wilder films that kind of do these ideas better. Um, two years later or four years later, he would make uh, some like it hot, which uh, kind of does the, the better version of the kind of six pop Marilyn Monroe and one of her final films. And uh, The Apartment, which I know I've mentioned on this show a few times, which does the kind of uh, marital infidelity thing, but kind of does it from the uh, from the opposite side. It does it from the perspective of the uh, woman who is, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, being led along um, and, and does it in a more kind of realistic, uh, harsher way that um, that I really respond to. So uh, The Seven Year Itch, it was, it was a fun watch. Um, it's got some issues, um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely... Uh, it's a classic for a reason, and, and for nothing else, is a historical artifact. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, and uh, Marilyn Monroe, um, she she gets overlooked for her acting talent. I think in a, in a lot in a lot of ways, uh, she's actually a really good actress. Um, one of my favorite roles from her is uh, she plays like a gangster's mole in uh, the Asphalt Jungle. I which... have the I am the Asphalt Jungle is on my short list to watch as part of the uh, part of like I've been I was watching a lot of noir films at the beginning of um, you know is is kind of sidelines mm-hmm. and they just fell out of that as I just ran out of time to do it but um, that one is on my on my short list. Asphalt Jungle is really good. It's a it's an excellent uh, early sort of heist film and she is stunning in it. Like she is absolutely I I this is for me personally and I've seen actually quite a few films with her in it. This is the best she's ever looked in a film, as far as I'm concerned. Really, really good. And she just does a great job. Like, and that's her, from 52? 50, 51 or 52, something like that, yeah. yeah. Her part is a part that shouldn't really have any sort of weight to it. Like, it's kind of underwritten and everything, but she really shines in it. She she brings something to that role that was not in the script, as far as I'm concerned. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's definitely one to check out uh, for anyone interested. And I and actually that's kind of a classic of the genre anyway. So uh, I, I would hope a lot of people have already seen it, but if not, the Asphalt Jungle, check it out. Uh, I think we can uh, get right into our movies now, Daniel. So uh, we're going to start with The Lodger from 1944.
this, Inspector? Well, some poor chap beat his sweetheart to death with this. Why did he do it? Well, we've never known exactly, but my belief at this moment is that she failed to answer some perfectly simple question. In that case, Inspector, I'll come to tea on Friday. Thank you, Miss Langley. Does anybody know why he commits these murders? The Rupert must have a motive, but no man alive can even guess at what it might be. And the women who could know are dead. Yours is a beauty which could destroy me. Is that a compliment? Or it could destroy you. Have you thought of that? That's a very queer thing to say, and besides, I don't think I'm beautiful at all. I uh, take a great deal of trouble to give that impression, though. It is one thing if a woman is beautiful merely for herself. But when she exhibits the loveliness of her body upon the stage... Uh, directed by John Brom, written by uh, Barry Lyndon. Screenplay, Mary Belloc Lowndes is the novel that this is based upon. And starring Merle Arboron as Kitty Langley, George Saunders as Inspector John Warwick, who actually, people probably would know him as the voice of Shere Khan in the Disney's The Jungle Book uh, from 67. He actually had a pretty long career, but that's probably one of his more notable roles. The excellent uh, Laird Krieger is Mr. Slade. Cedric Hardwick is Robert Bonting. Sarah Allgood is Ellen Bonting. Uh, Aubrey Mather is the Superintendent uh, Sutherland. Queenie Leonard as Daisy the Maid. Doris Lloyd as Jenny. David Clyde as Sergeant Bates. And Helena Pickard as Annie Rowley. Uh, and I'll let you get into your synopsis there, Daniel. All right, no problem. <clears throat> the film opens late on a foggy night in Victorian London. The bars close in the Whitechapel district, and a young woman separates herself from the crowds of drunken revelers and ducks into an alleyway, seemingly on her way home. Off-screen, a piercing scream is heard. Jack the Ripper is on the loose. In what is surely an unrelated plot thread, a middle-aged woman, Sarah Bunting, Sarah Allgood, is renting some rooms to make a bit of extra money so the patriarch of the home, Robert Bunting, Sir Cedric Hardwick, may rebuild his failing business. So when a looming figure carrying a black bag introduces himself to Sarah as Mr. Slade and pays four weeks' rent in advance, everyone basically turns a blind eye to whatever eccentricities he might have. Slade, Laird Krieger, keeps odd hours, refers to his experiments that may require large amounts of direct heat, and always uses the back door. He also has a strange aversion to actresses of all kinds, which becomes a bit of a point of contention when he discovers that Bunting's niece also shares the home, and that the young woman is none other than the stunning stage performer Kitty Langley, Merle Oberon. If you have yet to guess that Slade is the killer, I suspect you have never seen a film before. <laughs> as the film continues, the murders do as well, including a pastor prime stage actress named Annie Rowley, Helena Packard, Pickard, who formerly occupied the lovely Kitty's dressing room. As Kitty was one of the last to see Annie alive, she is questioned by police inspector John Warwick, George Sanders, and a romance begins to bloom that includes a first date to Scotland Yard's famous Black Museum. The murders continue, suspicion onto the mysterious lodger heightens, but since there seems little solid evidence, the, the concerns are poo-pooed by the aging Robert. Nevertheless, the Bontings agree not to allow the young kitty to be a home alone with the lodger, a measure that makes it seem as if they maybe should have mentioned their concerns to Kitty herself, but what use could it be to worry such a lovely young actress? 
Slade confronts Kitty, telling her of her great beauty in his eyes, but in language that comes straight out of a men's rect activist, he essentially calls actresses painted whores and says that true beauty was represented by his now-deceased brother, who besides being astonishingly handsome, was an amazingly gifted painter. Some detective work later, the inspector has collected a police dragnet to protect Kitty. After a performance, the first seen by Slade as he had made excuses to avoid her performances in the past, she is confronted by the lodger and begs that she will do whatever he likes, be as still as his beloved waters of the Thames, if he spares her life. The police come in the nick of time, wounding Slade in the neck with a shot, but he escapes into the back of the theater. Another failed attempt at murdering the actress later, Slade is surrounded by the police and leaps into the river, apparently dead by drowning or by blood loss. We end on Kitty's face, unable to understand just why a man would do some terrible things. Excellent. And uh, since you've uh, just watched these two films again this, tonight, um, I'll let you start uh, with your thoughts on this one, Daniel. All right. So um, the lodger, kind of the uh, my my original thought was just kind of like this isn't as good as Tangover Square, <laughs> which I did watch first. It uh, and I, and I'll kind of get into that a little bit a bit here shortly. I'm rewatching it because I did. Uh, having a week off actually allowed me to rewatch both films. Mm-hmm. I did uh, find I liked The Lodger better on a second watch through. I think that, you know, part of the issue is that, you know, so much of this has just kind of been done, done again better, mm-hmm. um, or at least in, in kind of more modern terms. It's been ripped off so many times and, and it's been uh, kind of used. A lot of these uh, themes and, and such have been used so many times. I was honestly on first watch through, I was expecting, you know, um, Krieger is so obviously the killer. In terms of the way things are shot, and the I was expecting it to there to be a twist at the end that he's not really the killer, yeah. uh, which I believe is how the 1927 version ends, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did um, I did read a lot um, of, of kind of people talking about this film. There's a, there's kind of a, a little bit of a rich literature surrounding um, the Lodger, um, this 1944 version. I did find a couple of um, you know kind of blog posts and uh, some stuff on uh, TCM, which. Uh, talk about how this uh, prefigures so much of like the hammer horror stuff and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I do find um, Krieger is just magnetic. Um, Krieger is amazing yeah. in the role. Um, but I think the, the, and the, in the cinematography the direction, the, um, uh, that German expressionist uh, kind of direction is uh, pretty brilliant. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much down with the kind of the way this film looks. Um, it's, it's sumptuous. It's a gorgeous experience. Um, foggy London. I mean, it, it looks like it's shot on a backstage, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous backstage. Yeah. Um, but everything that isn't either cinematography, direction-related, or uh, Laird Krieger, I just kind of lost interest in almost completely. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's kind of the biggest fault in the film. Is it, it just He's good enough that, he, that, that nothing else really lives up to him. And um, I, that's I, kind I, of my, my I, overall impression of the Lodger, you know? I, I totally agree. Krieger is fucking fantastic in this film he draws your attention from everything else in the film his performance uh and at this point he was he was starting to cut weight because before this he had had a couple film roles where he had put on a lot of weight he was he was he was a very big man to start with he was, he, he was over 300 pounds and mm-hmm. six foot four at mm-hmm. this point yeah um, and, and and we'll talk a little bit about his weight here we kind of have to talk about these together they were they're they're so closely connected in some ways but um, yeah sorry continue you yeah. he was 300 pounds and uh six foot four yeah and he he had cut some weight for this and he was he 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 brings this really interesting uh presence to this film that uh, I, I I would dare say there's uh, a, a lot of sort of gay subtext, subtext to this. Um, Krieger himself was a homosexual who was keeping that hidden 
in, in at the time. It was kind of an open secret among the Hollywood people, um, mm-hmm. but um, it certainly wasn't known to the general public. And in fact, um, Daryl Zanuck, the uh, uh, producer, the uh, the studio head at the time, was like intentionally, um, basically um, telling telling Krieger to stop being so fucking gay, and uh, yeah. got him um, dates with uh, with lovely young ladies to like convince and um, did that uh, the world to convince the world that he was not uh, that he was not uh, flaming. But um, yeah. he, was, he was apparently very gay, and in fact, his uh, lover had died just the year before in like a, a terrible, um, like a senseless murder sort of thing. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that uh, that that very clearly plays into his performance and uh, his his homosexuality. I mean, it, it's hard not to read this film in the light of his homosexuality in, in yeah. a lot of ways. Um, but he he brings a very, um, I guess the best word to say is like sensitive. Uh, very introspective kind of kind of performance. Um, there, there is like early on, there is some doubt as to whether he is the killer or not. Um, but I don't know. This performance is really fucking something. Like I, I can see why they were very keen after this film to like bring him in in similar films and like try to do a series, which was the original intent here. He just brings this really artistic sens- sensitivity a real emotional kind of performance that I really appreciated. I really enjoyed it. You can definitely sympathize with him at some, some respects. He, he, he presents himself as an outsider and a quote unquote weirdo, but all the characters around him is a sort of chalk that up to, Oh, he's uh he's an intellectual. He's an eccentric. He's, you know, we just have to leave him to his devices and not question what he does. Cause he's well, a doctor. Well, and he's, he's paying, I mean, the 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 kind of um, the the economic impulse. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a gentleman. He's a weird guy, but he's he's kind of he's he's paying us in advance for four whole weeks. Yeah. Um. You know, and it, it ends up being twenty pounds and the entire amount of money that the that the uh, that she needs in order to kind of rebuild this guy's business or whatever is a hundred pounds. And so he's little. He gives her twenty percent of the total amount that she needs in one fell swoop and when and, and the the economic incentives absolutely i think speak to how this guy is able to kind of go about undetected it's yeah. not that people don't have misgivings about him it's that they're um unwilling to interrogate those in favor of uh you know they, they turn a blind eye because he's he's giving them money and because he's a member of this kind of wealthy upper class sort of so sort of, you know this academic this guy working as a pathologist in a, in a in a university i mean um that is an element of the film that is that i think is under discussed um because mm-hmm. I, I think that uh that was very clear to me on on the first watch through even and then watching it the second time it's even more clear um to to what degree <laughs> you yeah. know the the um the, the robert the the old man uh essentially uh, he's originally like wait a minute you let this guy rent this room you didn't get any references like he just moved in like tonight and uh, she's like, well, yeah, but he paid like 20 guineas. He played, he paid four weeks in advance. And then from then on, he's like, Hey, well, you know, um, you know, we don't know he's a killer. Come on. Like he might be the killer. He might not. And lots of people have a black bag. What are you talking about? Come on. I mm-hmm. got a black bag. I mean, he's, um, he, he gets uh defensive. And, um, I think that the characterization of, of some of the supporting cast, um, gets a little wobbly at times because, you know, you kind of go, well, you already knew this, this, and this, and how did you not kind of put two and two together? And they're uh, simultaneously like, well, we got to protect this young girl, but we don't think, but we can't say he did anything wrong. And I think that part of this is the, uh, the kind of mid forties performance style just kind of didn't allow for 
some of the psychological depth is kind of lost yeah. in the actors. Um, and I think that uh, Krieger is, is very modernistic in his performance in both yes. of these films. He's not doing method. It's not like kind of that uh, no. streetcar named Desire Brando style. But he's absolutely giving this very broad, you know, a very big performance, but a very introspective performance as well. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's yeah. using his size to... Uh, dominate the, the, you know, the director and Krieger himself, use his size to dominate the screen. But because he's quiet, because he's internalized in his acting, he doesn't come across as aggressive. He just comes across as imposing. And Impo- so, yeah, imposing and menacing. Very good point there. The way he is filmed, basically all the shots you see of him, it's the camera looking up at him to some extent. Yeah. Um, they, they use his height to really uh, great effect in this film. Uh, he he is basically uh, overshadowing everyone else in the film, and uh, you make a good point about his performance being more modernistic. I think that is kind of what has made this film sort of uh, sustain its impact throughout the years, is because it does have that kind of influential uh, kind of aspect to it, where you, you see that a performance like Krieger's uh, sort of the germination of future kind of like psychopaths and stuff in, in, in films. I've watched basically all the versions of the Lodger. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if I got this mixed up or not, but the, uh, the two people who take him in the, the husband, wife, these two, if I, if I recall correctly, are from an affluent family that has fallen on bad times where they no longer have money. He was, he was a, uh, he's a merchant of some kind who has uh, kind of lost his business and, and kind of an economic downturn kind of thing. And uh, he's trying to rebuild, um, they obviously still, I mean, they're still paying a maid. They're still, um, I mean, they're, but we're also talking about, um, this is in the Whitechapel district, yeah. which is uh, right on the docks and is a uh, very, uh, you know, I, I hate talking about um, British things because I know we have British listeners who are going to uh, send me, send me messages and tell me where I'm wrong on this. But my understanding <laughs> is that it's, uh, you know, it, it's, consi- it's right by the docks. I mean, it is kind of like almost this like Southie Boston kind of, mm-hmm. uh, kind of um, place. And so um, the idea being like the, the kind of a, uh, the wealthy people, you know, kind of import exporters, I guess, you know, in a, um, in this kind of like very working class area that's uh, filled with, um, you know, those dirty immigrants, you know, (laughs) and that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, You you definitely get a sense of um, where they are kind of economically precarious in some ways Um, that it's not uh, quite as simple as like, well, well, they're wealthy or they've kind of fallen on hard times. It's sort of like they are kind of of this kind of upper class, but, you know, kind of, uh, among the working class, which, which puts them in this kind of uh, position and the fact that, um, you know, um, the lodger comes in, Slade comes in and, uh, which is an assumed name. We, we never learned his, yeah. his real name, uh, but Slade comes in and he's, uh, you know, he's basically just allowing them to turn a blind eye by giving them, you know, the resources that they want. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause the other versions of this film, the two people that take him in are just sort of, portrayed as working class instead of uh, uh, upper class. Um, uh, While the 2009 one, I guess that one as well, kind of portrays the person who brings the lodger in as uh, working class. But um, yeah, this is the the one film where it's uh, uh, two more sort of um, upper middle class people falling on hard times uh, bringing the lodger in, which adds to the economic kind of uh, impact, I think, to a certain degree, kind of, kind of makes it a little bit more um, realistic, I guess, in a, in a way. 
Well, um, like uh, the desire to like rub elbows with this guy who is you mm-hmm. know, who is a, a gentleman. They say it several times. He is a gentleman. Um, yeah. In fact, even the even the actress Kitty kind of responds to him as a, you know, well, he's a gentleman. Of course, he can he can kind of do what he he can kind of do what he likes. And um, you know, they they, they um, miss the threat or they understate the threat because he is of this this upper class. And I am almost interested in seeing the modern version of this, but I, I don't imagine that the modern version is uh, going to do anything really interesting with these it's, ideas in class, you know? I'll, I'll just say straight out, don't watch it. It's terrible. <laughs> okay. Um, I would love to see a good modern take on this um, that yeah. would actually examine some of these issues of, uh, you know, the, the kind of larger world in which these these things take place and was a little bit less focused on the kind of incidental characters that don't, you know, ultimately matter that much to the overall storyline. I would I would love to see actually uh, it's not even a modern remake. Uh, it's almost like I wish that Laird Krieger had been directed by Fritz Lang in yeah. M or something. You know, I I, I almost uh, not that uh, what uh, John Brom I think is the is the director here. Yeah. Um, who I think does a brilliant job. Uh, but uh, something more like M, which which describes the kind of uh, the panic around the the murders that are occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this kind of Krieger performance at its center, I think would be a a more fascinating look rather than this kind of what feels like at least today by fairly by the numbers at least on a on a kind of a, a plot level. Um, this just executed fairly well. Um, and, yeah, you know, with a with great, great performance at the center, you know. And that was something I was drawing from as well as I was watching. It I was like, okay, there's a lot of stuff here that feels like M. Like there 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 is that there is that sort of. Um, I guess M really kind of established that sort of serial killer movie uh, to a certain degree, like certain tropes in it, um, especially the uh, panic in the public. But then I watched the Alfred Hitchcock version from 27. I saw a lot in that. And of course this is a silent movie. Um, There's different versions of it. There's a shorter version that doesn't have as many um, sort of title cards in it. Then there, I I watched the long version, which is incredibly long for a silent movie. It's like uh, an hour and a half or more that has all the title cards in it, man, there's a lot of stuff in there. Whereas like Fritz Lang must've seen this film and directly ripped a lot from it because I think that is probably the first uh, real serial killer film that's ever been made. Like that film really does deal with in its opening moments, a lot of the same stuff you see in M about the sort of panic in the public um, where there there's actually, there's a direct scene where you see a woman who says she saw the killer running to a crowd of people say, I saw the killer, I saw the killer, and they disbelieve her, right? And then there's another scene where um, a guy is attacked because he's believed to be the killer. Well, you so so I did not get the chance. I, I really wanted to see the, the 27 version. I just didn't make the time to do it this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's on my list, don't worry. Um, I think one thing we didn't emphasize enough, and when we talked about him a few months ago now, is that, um, you know, even in 31, there was this kind of literature of serial killers and this kind of mm-hmm. knowledge of um, the, the serial killer uh, kind of, I mean, really Jack the Ripper, the, the, the real life occurrences inspired such a uh, kind of a, a genre of literature in, in London and in, in England, in the uh, 19th century um, that, uh, you know, some of the early, I mean, a lot of the earliest films at all were, were essentially, you know, killer films, serial killer yeah. films. Uh, one of the other things, uh, you know, again, talking about M and I'm, I, and I promise I'm bringing this back to, to uh, <laughs> the logic here in a second. Um, you know, it's easy kind of looking backwards to look at something like M and think that it's uh, kind of inventing a lot of these like cinematic techniques. It's not. 
Um, yeah. It's drawing out of a rich tradition of um, of this kind of German expression of style, and doing it in a kind of populist way, but also yeah. in, a, in a in a heavily you know kind of artistic way. Um, the fact, I mean, the real triumph of M is not necessarily even the visuals, but the marriage of the visuals to this burgeoning technology of sound. By the time of the Lodger, um, you also have to keep in mind that uh, Joseph Brahms, I think that's his name, Joseph Brahms, uh, mm-hmm. was was also a, a director who fled the Nazis. Uh, yeah. That he was a well-known director of these kinds of films in the 30s, and um, he's definitely coming out of that same kind of school. Uh, in fact, I think that audiences in 1944 would have considered some of the um, sequences of these films to be kind of feel a little old-fashioned, to feel a little like oh, kind of a throwback to that, to those 30s eras, as opposed to um, the other stuff that we've watched uh, that's that's made in the 40s. You know, you think about um, Kiss of Death is much more kind of what, what a standard noir film would have looked like at this time. Mm-hmm. The, the more abstract German expression of stuff had kind of given way into a, a, a kind of a tough guy noirish feel, whereas uh, here we're still kind of doing this, this slightly more um, kind of black and white, slightly harder edge, slightly more uh, kind of aggressive uh, shadows and that sort of thing, um, kind of uh, visual presentation. Sorry, I just talked way too long about uh, <laughs> about uh, 30s expressionism, but you know, hey, this is this is noir, nope. right? You know, that was I'm good. Gonna... That was good. This film is is definitely one of the versions that uh, identifies the killer as Jack the Ripper and sets it in Whitechapel. Um, the original novel does not do that. The original film does not do that. The Alfred Hitchcock one, uh, uh, they they refer to the killer as the Avenger. It, it is definitely inspired directly from one of the uh, many sort of stories that came from the Jack the Ripper sort of mythos. Um, I'll point to a Jack Graham comment that he made uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he said, did you know that the lodger was partly inspired by after dinner anecdotes about someone who had had Jack the Ripper as a lodger or so claimed that they thought Jack the Ripper was a lodger in which the painter Walter uh, Sickert uh, used to love to tell. Sickert spun similar tales to his son, the painter Joseph Sickert, who later relayed them to the journalist Stephen Knight, who worked uh, them up into a book about Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, which named Sir William Gull uh, the first popularized uh, Masonic conspiracy theory of uh, the, uh, the Masons basically covering up Jack the Ripper as, as the killer as being uh, some sort of upper crust person, like a doctor or something along those lines. It was basis for the movie Murder by Decree, which, of course, is probably, I think, the first movie that uh, sort of speculates that Jack the Ripper was uh, involved with the Masons to some degree. And and in that course, in that movie, he's hunted by Sherlock Holmes, which uh, led to Alan Moore's comic From Hell, which also goes for sort of the same premise of a Masonic uh, connection to the killer. And, yeah, that's kind of an interesting part of this sort of Jack the Ripper uh, mythology. Like, there's just this business whole sort of fictional... Uh, exploration of the killer because he was never caught. So he's mm-hmm. always been stuck in the public conscience to some degree. I think there is definitely this sort of overwhelming desire to, if you can't do it in real life, at least fictionally come to some conclusion and some sort of cap on the killer. So a lot of books and stuff like that uh, really do deal with trying to catch the killer and coming to some solution. I think it's interesting that you take a fictional detective like Sherlock Holmes and of course, Sherlock Holmes would be the guy if he actually existed to catch the killer. And so you you definitely see a lot of Sherlock Holmes uh, fiction connected with Jack the Ripper. Like you know, uh, we we have this kind of idea that uh, you know, like Sherlock Holmes is uh, 
all right, I'm, I'm going to reach a little bit here, but um, Sherlock Holmes is kind of like Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, Superman comes out of the experience of uh, kind of late 30s um, American immigrant Jewish kids who uh, wanted a hero who could uh, beat up the terrible people they knew in their real lives. I mean, in the early comics, uh, Superman is literally, as, as often as he's beating up kind of like space aliens or supervillains, he's beating up like like terrible tenant uh, owners and that sort of thing, and uh, slumlords, and uh, and kind yeah, of well, his, yeah, in the American yeah, his, his, his early stuff, he's beating up gangsters, basically, right? <laughs> like gangsters and, and, and like people, people. I mean, he's he's almost um, objectively fighting for like this kind of FDR era, uh, you know, kind of uh, socialist vision in a way. Connecting that back to Jack the or to to Sherlock Holmes. You know, Sherlock Holmes is almost our, our, our childlike um, desire for a for a detective who can put all the pieces together. We have this feeling that all the all the pieces are there if we only had a mind that was complex enough and, and smart enough to to put it together for us and and solve this mystery and give us this unambiguous solution to who this horrible killer was. The the truth is that that's not really how crimes are yeah. are, are are done. But I mean. Um, that, I think that's why the Sherlock Holmes almost almost a monomyth. This is almost it's not even a myth. It's a myth about myths almost that that we see so many. I mean, Daryl Zero draws out of that same yeah. kind of idea. Is like there's this guy who's just that bright um, who can who can solve this for us. Who can who can make this fit together. And the the way that kind of uh, culture uh, interacts with those that kind of desire for a uh, this this kind of heroic brilliant person tinges on the kind of the great man of history problem and it tinges on you know so much of the uh, kind of if we only had this bright person who could just uh, who could just make the country work right and could just mm-hmm. solve all our problems as opposed to us kind of having to solve all our problems piecemeal for yeah. ourselves you know um, sorry that got I got I kind of got big picture on that but I think the film definitely kind of uh, or, or the, the ripper mythos that kind of the, the fear of the ripper is that that it is nebulous and unknown and we don't know who it was and so we get to just kind of make up details and the yep. the stories about the ripper are in a lot of ways more interesting than who the identity of this actual killer really was um we yep. don't even know how many people the ripper actually killed because there might have been yeah. several people doing murders and that sort of thing um i've looked a little bit into the ripper stuff and it's it doesn't draw me in enough to uh to force me to, uh, to to kind of know all the details by heart, but um, it's very much like the JFK assassination in that way, to where you know mm-hmm. it's it's you know I I am of the opinion that Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK alone, but the uh, kind of the the hypotheses surrounding that are almost more interesting than you know like Oswald himself. So you know, yeah, and, and the Ripper killings become even more mythological because there's really no hard forensic science at that point. They, they feel like there's like five official ripper murders that they can pin on him yep. and and then after that and even it even goes back to uh the episode we did on the town of dreaded sundown with mm-hmm. uh with the phantom killer there um i was thinking a lot of that film when i was rewatching yeah. the lottery game is it's a lot of the same uh it's a lot of the same thing it, it, it's just it becomes absorbed by the public conscience and everyone has their own theories and it becomes a myth and it becomes larger than life and uh our fictional heroes are the things that the public conscience sort of uh develops to answer these questions that can never actually be answered and you know just make us feel safe and secure that we actually do have an answer for the monsters out there that uh, do horrible things but uh yeah um can i say this conversation we just had is way more interesting than the than than everything but laird krieger in the in the lodger 
<laughs> Probably. Yeah. I really, I really wish this was uh, this was more in the film. Um, we're we're completely uh, on a on a sideline at this point. But um, yeah, uh, I'll go through a couple things here. Uh, uh, Larry Krieger's screen pre- uh, presence and performance basically here created uh, such a sensation that uh, 20th Century Fox they had planned to do a whole series of films with him, basically uh, revolving around this. Uh, the film we're going to get into, Hangover Square, was the first of these, also directed by uh, John Brom. Uh, and also screenwritten by uh, Barry Lyndon, um, and and also co-starring George uh, Sanders, who did the detective part in this film. But plans were cut short because, unfortunately, Krieger is one of those victims of Hollywood at the time where he he died of a fatal heart attack right before Hangover Square was released. Um, he he would like I like we were saying here he was starting to lose weight apparently uh, using uh, I guess uh, methamphetamines to uh, lose weight and uh, basically gave him a fatal heart attack which is really goddamn sad because he's a fucking talented guy. I, I kind of wish there was more movies to see him in really. Really, really, what you what you now what you can say is to any to any um, young teen that you think might be uh, abusing methamphetamines, just say don't be like Laird Krieger. Yeah, and they'll get that reference immediately. <laughs> uh, well, be like Laird Krieger, just don't do the just don't the, do the, the methamphetamine. Yeah, yeah, because Laird Krieger is fucking brilliant. Uh, so, uh, so there's actually uh, since since you bring it up, I'm I'm gonna just uh, the uh, the actress Merle Oberon, mm-hmm. who is uh, the the female lead of this of this film. Uh, actually uh, was apparently one of the big people who was encouraging Krieger to uh, to lose weight. Like, if you lose weight, you could be a leading man. And apparently she kind of downplays her own influence uh, kind of kind of later in her life. She uh, definitely was, oh, no, 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 my, that experience, I, I barely remember being on that film, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but a- apparently, basically, she was she was kind of pressuring him, like telling him you could be a big star and kind of, kind of giving him this, this belief in, in his own, abilities to kind of become a leading man if you just lost a bunch of weight. And I think that led directly to his, to his eventual death. Um, I, 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 I buy that to the extent that um, I, I read a lot of sort of anecdotes while I was researching this of Krieger was basically desperate to get like leading man roles and stuff like that. And, you know, he, he had, he definitely had hurdles to um, uh, uh, jump just with his homosexuality, but um, the image problem as well. I, I can definitely see that at the time, yeah. Although he, when you think about it, he fits perfectly as a sort of noir leading man kind of hero because yeah. uh, he, he's got the same sort of build as like a Victor Mature or something like that where that big raw-boned guy, you know, he's you know he's a little soft around the middle part, but, you know, big. I mean, Laird Krieger was a big guy either way. Like, he, even if he was thin, he would be a big guy. Well, well after... Um... Krieger died a couple of years later. Raymond Burr kind of comes on the screen, mm-hmm. uh, kind of comes on the scene, excuse me. And uh, basically, uh, there was a rumor going around that uh, Raymond Burr was actually Krieger's brother or something like that. <laughs> and Raymond Burr did not um, discourage those rumors because it got him roles that Krieger would have otherwise gotten. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, Raymond Burr in some ways uh, owes, owes to, to some degree, owes his career to the fact that Krieger wasn't, wasn't around anymore. 
Um, and Kevin kind of starts to fill that role. Um, there's a really nice piece um, at, a, at a blog because she blogged by night that uh, I'm going to share to our Facebook page okay. um, after this, after we record this episode um, that was uh, instrumental in making me rewatch The Lodger and, and kind of because it really, um, uh, the, the author, uh, she, she gets a lot more out of the film than I did. And I see many of her points, even though I, I appreciate the film less than she does. Um, I think it's, uh, th- this piece is really worthwhile and um yeah, so so I'll link to it. Um, she talks. Uh, uh, one thing, the only other thing I do want to talk about about the lodger is that it uh, the the sexual elements of the film. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that she is an actress. Uh, the fact that uh, it, you know an actress is almost euphemistic. I mean, she's doing these this basically can can dancing. And in fact, the uh, the, the old woman, the middle aged woman, um, even kind of says like she gets on the stage and she's almost doing can can dancing you know there is this <laughs> sense of like you know this, this kind of lascivious uh, treatment of, of this uh of this actress um i mean today we would see her much more like like almost like a vegas showgirl or something um would would be kind of a, a more kind of culturally similar thing and there are two mm-hmm. it's in the sequences in the lodger which are dance sequences in which um there are you know kind of shot and edited in a way that is it is overtly sexualized i yeah. mean you know there, there's um uh, and in the second, it's it's kind of intercut with Krieger, um, kind of his increasing uh, simultaneous terror and rage at the at the way she makes him feel, and that's uh, that connection to um, this kind of either a fear of his the character, not the actor. Sorry, a fear of like the character's possible kind of impending you know homosexuality or just. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, brother might yeah. not be a brother. It's kind of kind of where I kept kind of coming back to, like you look know, how look, beautiful look, my brother was. Look at how brother, look at his brow. Look at how brilliant yeah. he was. And this is not not the way a man describes a, a biological brother. I mean, this is. I think I think there's a gay reading of this film that is uh, simultaneously really interesting, but also um, you know, such the again that kind of becomes the cliche of the the gay killer is kind of what yeah. that's about. Then. Um, but such an early example, it's, it's, it's very well executed if that's kind of what was intended. Um, but it's, um, and, and the, the, uh, the She Blood by Night uh, piece goes into that a little bit more detail. So I'll, I'll uh, just share that to the Facebook page and let people read it. Awesome. And we'll probably link it in the show notes as well. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll just mention the original novel um, ends ambiguously. Um, with the reader never sure if the lodger was actually the killer. The Alfred Hitchcock film, of course, uh, changes the ending. And uh, I, I still recommend you watch it because I'm not really giving too much away. It's still actually a phenomenal film. It's probably Hitchcock actually said it was his first like really good film that he made. There's also some other adaptations that have actually changed the ending as well. Um, where the the lodger is proven to be the killer, and that would be like the Jack Palance uh, version from '53 called "Man in the Attic," where <laughs> and it, and in that one, it's kind of hard not to instantly know that Jack Palance is the killer. There's no way he could not be the killer just because he's Jack Palance is such a skull faced, grinning villain. It's actually not a bad movie. It's just like there's no suspense at all to that one, and and and, and it's definitely inferior compared to this version of the lodger. Uh, the 32 version is also, it's all right, but it's very sort of typical. The, the, this version is the version of the Lodger, even though Alfred Hitchcock's is really great. Uh, this is the definite version for me. Um, I think it's really well done. It, it's got more, it's got more flair and artistic uh, visuals and stuff to it than um, I've seen in any other one. Although the Alfred Hitchcock one, there there is some good stuff. Like there's, uh, you see some hints of his uh stuff to come uh there's this really good close-up of the first victim that the film opens on 
where she sees the lodger and it's from the lodger's point of view. Uh, he, where he comes in to kill her and uh, it's really well done. I, I don't think there's probably any other silent movie that's really done what that film did back in the day. So uh, it stands out. George Sanders, by the way, um, who was the detective in the film. During World War II, he did a series of films where he played uh, two different uh, characters, The Falcon and The Saint. <laughs> this guy went on to have uh, a couple of novels ghost-written <laughs> under his name cashing in on the fame of uh, those film series they were actually both written by female authors by the way the the, the film the uh, ghost written novels well women women uh, getting having careers uh, ghost writing for men you know that's that's not at all a a, a new thing so, and, no. and, uh, and i bring this up because one of them was lay bracket oh well that's uh you know again wrapping right back around to yeah. uh you know to our to our uh, our our continual uh, our podcast girlfriend, can we can we call uh, Lee Brackett our, our our podcast wife or something? Hell yeah, sure, why not? I'd admire <laughs> Lee Brackett. She was fucking brilliant. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, we're gonna play a couple of uh, little promos from uh, two different podcasts: uh, the Badass Boobs and Body Counts and the Hail Ming Power Hour. And then we'll come right back for Hangover Square. You've become a corporate whore. Is that what's happening now? Like you're, you're just you're just whoring out of the podcast. Like, well, no, because I'm not getting any money out of this. <laughs> it, oh, okay, it, okay. If, if if Mike Murphy from Badass Booze and Body Counts was paying me in money, or perhaps pictures of tits, he could still do that. By the way, send me tits, Mike. Um, but no, I, I'm not getting paid by anything. Uh, the oh. Hail Ming, the Hail Ming Power Hour, Ming the Merciless is not going to pay me shit. He's just going to destroy my planet. So, oh. so you haven't turned this into a, a capitalist enterprise, is what you're saying? Well, I mean, look at your paycheck. What does that tell you? Oh, well, that's true. I just thought you were exploiting me, like the uh, like the capitalist you 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 have. I am, I am exploiting you, but you're exploiting I mean, my labor, you know. Yeah, I am exploiting you, but I'm not. But I'm not paying you anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm exploiting you for your insight and knowledge on film, but I'm not oh. paying you shit. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, but uh, we'll be right back after these messages, kids. <laughs> Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. The Mathematics of Murder and Menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. 
most effective, your majesty. Will you destroy this earth? Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Danny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail, Hail Ming. Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud 2? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Helming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Helming. Breaking two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. And all right, uh, we can start now with uh, Hangover Square from 1945, although I think it was probably filmed in 44, but uh, it didn't get released. It was because uh, Krieger died in 44, so we can be pretty sure it was not filmed in 45. Yeah. Police tell strange tales about this man, who at one moment is a tender lover, and in the next moment, the fiendish slave of his own desire to kill. And this has been going on all the time, I suppose. Now, look here, my dear Paul. And It's uh, going to be all right in a day or two. But at the piano, she said, no. <laughs> my dear fellow, don't she get up there. She whispered to me, she promised, you could have me, she said. Never has such a gripping story been so realistically enacted. Breathtaking indeed are the performances of Laird Cragar, Linda Dornell, George Sanders, Glenn Langan, Faye Marlowe, and others. Why don't you go away and leave me alone? But George, you, you can't let me down now. Please. This goes on and on. These songs mean nothing to me. What do I get out of them? You could get me. Uh, directed by John Brown, uh, written by Barry Lyndon as, again, and based on a novel as well um, by Marion... Uh, no, did I get that right? But it is based on a novel, but I didn't write down who wrote it. Or it's not. I think Harrison it's, is his last name. Is uh, it? Patrick Hamilton, pardon me. Patrick, Patrick Hamilton. Hamilton, okay, there we go, yeah. Uh, written by Barry Lyndon, Marion Spritzer, and Patrick Hamilton is the novel that's based on... Uh, Again, starring uh, Laird Krieger is uh, George Harvey Bone. 
Linda Darnell, the lovely Linda Darnell as Netta Longden. Uh, George Sanders again as Dr. Alan Middleton this time around. Glenn Langan as Eddie Carstairs. Faye Marlowe as Barbara Chapman. And Alan Napier, who people might remember as Alfred from the 1966 Batman, as Sir Henry uh, Chapman. So there you go. That's your cast. And uh, we'll go right to the synopsis there, Daniel. George Harvey Bone, Laird Krieger, is a Victorian-era composer dedicated to his work of composing a concerto for Sir Henry Chapman, Alan Napier, but also given to bouts of memory loss that leave him fearful that he may be committing terrible acts during the blackout periods. He is right to fear so, because in one of the opening shots of the film, we see him brutally murdering an elderly antiques dealer and burning his shop. His concerns are belittled by psychiatrist Dr. Alan Middleton, George Sanders, despite being shared by Bone's neighbor Barbara Chapman, Faye Marlowe, who is also the daughter of the man funding the concerto. The psychiatrist, learning that Bone's black little moods are caused by any loud, dissonant note, simply urges the composer to take some time off from his work and relax. Attempting to take this advice, Bone attends the local music hall where he discovers the sultry popular singer, Netta Longden, Linda Darnell, and is immediately smitten by her. Upon her urging, he writes a few bars of music to go with the tune Netta is working on, and when she finds success with this music, she, encouraged by her business-slash-romantic partner Mickey, Michael Dine, begins to manipulate Bone into giving her more music, implying that she returns his affections and his desires for a more intimate relationship, despite finding him a crushing bore. The relationship between Longden and Bone continues, financially lucrative for her and romantic-slash-physical for him, until one night she spies the famous Eddie Carstairs and hatches a plan to ditch her dull date and sing for him so as to convince him to engage in a business partnership with her. Bone discovers her trick, though, confronts her, and is rebuffed for his romantic ineptitude. That night, after having his ears split by some falling pipes, Bone strangles the lovely Barbara, who had done nothing wrong, with a so-called thuggy cord while in a fugue state. He must have done it from behind, though, for Barbara does not realize who her assailant was, and expresses concern for what the relationship with Longden is doing to Bone's life and career. Bone agrees and decides to cut off contact with Longden. This does not last for long, however, and she soon entices him back into her arms and has him writing more music for her with the barely even implicit promise of sexual favors. Alas, when he later attempts to propose marriage to the lovely but, but duplicitous Langdon, he discovers her with her true beau, Mickey, and, enraged, attempts to strangle the other man. He flees the scene despondent, but when his cat, obtained from Longden, by the way, knocks over a musical instrument, he goes into another fugue state and returns to Langdon's uh, address to murder her. The film's last half hour consists basically of two virtuoso sequences. In the first, Bone carries Longden's now lifeless body wrapped in a sheet through the sheets of London. Having had the blind luck to murder his wannabe lover on Guy Fawkes Day, he is inconspicuous in crowds of others burning effigies in a giant bonfire and is able to destroy the body in perfect safety. In the other, the increasingly mad Bone has finally completed the brilliant concerto he has spent the entire film composing, but the music itself seems to draw out his memories of his terrible crimes, and in the midst of the performance he is confronted first by the psychiatrist, then the police. Having thrown a flame through, through, towards the police while in flight, Bone first attempts to listen to his beautiful music just once before he is taken, but as the entire concert hall begins to become engulfed in flame, Bone sets himself before the piano to perform the piece itself as the building burns around him. One gets the sense, though, that in his Art, Bone has finally found the contentment that has eluded him throughout the rest of the film. Nice. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure I said Langdon and Longden interchangeably there. Uh, the character's name is Longdon, not Longdon. So yeah. uh, I apologize. Again, uh, since both these films are fresh in your mind, uh, I'll get you to uh, start off your initial thoughts on this one. I discovered this through Linda Darnell. Um, I had seen her in uh, a couple other films, and uh, this was. Uh, you know, kind of highly regarded on her on her Wikipedia page is, is a film worth seeing. Well, you um, uh, you mentioned her 
earlier in a, another episode of this uh, podcast. I did. And you, um, yeah. I had I had originally watched um, It Happens Tomorrow, which is kind of a, a kind of a, a cheesy romantic thing from 1944, mm-hmm. um, and she is just mesmerizing in that. Like she is way better than the rest of the film. Um, she has this uh, incredibly uh, kind of uh, again modernistic kind of kind of style of acting. Um, she is uh, just a sassy little spitfire <laughs> and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw uh, another film she made, and I'm forget I'm blanking on the title right now. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. But I did see her in a in a, in a noir film. Um, I had and she did she did quite a few kind of kind of noirish things. Um, and I had uh, seen her in that and mentioned it uh, earlier as so what we've been watching uh, in, in one of those mm-hmm. segments. Um, and I will say that uh, my wife Shana, upon seeing her for the first time, immediately was like, "Well, of course you're into her. Like she, she's she's the one who gives no fucks. She's <laughs> she's the she's the uh, the one the the aggressive one. She she's the uh, you know, of course you're into that. That's the one you're into. Of course, like you know, because <laughs> she she knows how to say no. It's great. Um, so." Um, yeah, I discovered this through Linda Darnell. I kind of kind of watched it. I, I wasn't really. I was like, oh, it's it's kind of a serial killer movie. It's kind of this you know kind of thing. Uh, but it's got uh, this girl Linda Darnell, this woman Linda Darnell, who I'm I'm really like interested in seeing more of her work. Um, who I've just kind of like fallen for as my you know kind of movie girlfriend from the forties. Um, <laughs> she's kind of my solo Miranda, but you know from from the from the mid forties. Yeah. Uh, and uh, really enjoyed the film. Like even even yeah. the, even aside from Darnell, uh, but I did discover the film through her, and I kind of at first was kind of viewing the film through that lens, uh, and then found Laird Krieger so fascinating that I started looking at his other stuff, and that led me to the Lodger. So I kind of found these backwards. Yeah. Um, uh, originally, I was just going to talk about Hangover Square as a um, like I kind of I kind of kinda recommended it to you like you should see this, mm-hmm. um, particularly for the last uh, you know kind of twenty minutes or so, yes. which are um, absolutely um, astonishing for nineteen forty four that or nineteen forty five. I think I mentioned it as like a, a sequence David Fincher would be proud to direct. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, but the rest of the film really holds up as well. I mean, this is um, one of the one of the issues, and I'm, I'll get into this a little bit more uh, here in a minute. But one of the issues is that uh, people kind of connected these two films at the time. Um, I think a lot of people see Hangover Square as kind of the pale retread of the Lodger. It's kind of like oh, they were just trying to remake the Lodger again. And on a superficial level, I mean, it's like well, kind of you know, they're both about the kind of killers who you know, serial killers who uh, well, kill a killing young woman halfway through, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the psychology and the themes and everything are, are completely different. They're, they're very different films and, and yeah. Krieger is giving two very different performances. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I think that's a superficial reading of the film, um, which is bolstered by the fact that um, the original novel was not very much like the lodger. No. Um, and it kind of got um, shifted over into being much more like the lodger by, uh, Daryl Zanuck, who basically was trying to save money on some sets, and like, well, uh, make it more like the Lodger that was successful for us. Uh, we can reuse some of the sets, and it'll be popular the same way the Lodger was. <laughs> yeah, like the uh, like the Lodger, um, the sort of rewrites of this film, the change from the novel sets it back in Victorian times, where the actual novel for this film uh, that was based upon. Um, is actually in World War II is where it's set. It's set during that period. It's set, it's set basically contemporaneously with the um, with the production of the of the, of the film, mm-hmm. or, or with the writing of the novel. It was kind of a recent novel at the time, and it's uh, much more focused on the this kind of relationship between uh, Netta and Mickey and um, Bone. So so it's much more kind of about that um, relationship. Yeah. I don't even think there's a serial killer aspect in the novel. Um, 
reading no. the plot synopsis, I was in, in it, and it's explicitly about alcoholism as well. So I was definitely on that level. I was like, well, this sounds like again, kind of a more interesting um, version. Even then, I liked the film a lot, but I was I was kind of like, I need to read this novel. But I only discovered this uh, this afternoon as I was doing um, research, um, so I didn't get a chance to yeah, read the novel. But it's the, on my list the, to, to read definitely. The the Harvey Bone character in the novel apparently is, is just a straight up sad drunk. He's not a virtuoso pianist with uh, a lot of talent. You know, he he's not someone anyone would want to uh, clap onto. Apparently, the um, Linda Darnell character in the novel hangs out with him because he has money. Uh, right. I guess so. So that that's one of the main differences. But actually, I, I like the changes in this film compared to the novel. I think it works well. They were, of course, trying to capitalize on the Lodger's success. They were definitely trying to write it more towards that direction, but I think there's a lot of uh, sort of flourishes in the way things are done in this film that really set it apart from the Lodger and make it, on its own, a really excellent fucking film that I kind of think is highly influential for films from basically 20 years afterwards from this. Um, uh, There's definitely a lot about basically the psychology of a killer. I think one of the big things I take from this, uh, I'm watching this, and I think Roger Corman must have saw this film, um, because I look at all the Poe films that Corman did in the 60s with uh, Vincent Price, almost all of those films sort of follow the same pattern that the plot of this film sort of follows, where you, you have the slow buildup, you, you get the menace, the dread, the confusion, some plot twists sort of developing throughout the whole film, and then you get this just out of left field, crazy fucking ending where everything shit hits the fan and everything goes nuts. I, I did no further research to confirm this, so I might just be talking out my my ass. But I think Roger Corman might have saw this film and might have had that in mind. Well, particularly if you bring up the Vincent Price connection, because uh, there were radio versions of both uh, The Lodger and Hangover Square that were uh, done with uh, Vincent Price in the Larry wow. Krieger role. So um, that that would not at all surprise me, and that was in the early '50s. So it would have been before uh, Corman was. Uh, I, I haven't and, seen the films, but and w- and when I think about it, Vincent Price really does kind of like he's been known for playing a sort of character that kind of fits the Laird Krieger mode for for characters. Like there was always sort of an ambiguous kind of sensitivity to a lot of. Uh, Vincent Price's characters. Uh, I think mostly sort of in the inflection on how he spoke. There was always this sort of more uh, sensitive uh, psychological bent to the characters that he played. And you can definitely see that from Laird Krieger where you could see it. And I'm pretty sure Laird Krieger and Vincent Price were friends. I, I think I read that somewhere where they were... I, I mean, if they were, they were both, um, you know, you know, yeah, came out of that same kind of school and that same kind of subculture. I'm, I'm pretty sure they, I'm pretty sure they were in a movie together. Almost, um, I, I don't know if I read that correctly or not. Don't quote me on that shit. But I mean, there, there's just too many connections there where I where I just uh, chalk it up to a fucking coincidence at this point. But yeah, I think, uh, I think one thing I've learned from, from watching both of these films is that Krieger was someone that, that really was a special talent and really um, mm-hmm. he had a, he had a career in, in just a few years he made dozens of films, but I think he would have, he would have gone on to become much more, he would be better remembered had he not died so young. I mean, I think he was only um, 31 or something, 31, 31 when he, yeah. when he died, um, which I mean, it's astonishing that he's 31 years old here, you know? And yeah, and so, cause he looks, he looks a lot older. Like it's kind of weird when you look at actors back in the day, uh, 
where a 31-year-old would look like he's like 45 or something like that. But that's that's the, you know, you don't have like modern uh, advances in healthcare. Definitely, yeah. it definitely affects that. But I mean, I for, for me, it's not even so much like, well, he, he doesn't look 31 in, in the sense that he, he looks old as much as look at how great he was and he's only his maturity, yeah. He is such a uh, command of his of his of his craft. You know, I, I wouldn't say that this is a perfect film at all. I think actually no. the the elements that are uh, the the kind of uh, the faux psychology of the um, you know the 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 ringing uh, the dissonant tone is what kind of drives him mad mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, plays more as a, a kind of um, a metaphor for uh, you know kind of alcoholic <laughs> you yeah. know stumbling. I mean, you know when I when I first presented this film to you, I kind of said you know it's called Hangover Square, and you're like, well, I got to see something called Hangover Square. <laughs> um, you know, just is just is like that sounds interesting, and I'm like, well, it's not about that at all. But the novel kind of is, and um, it's very easy to kind of read this as a metaphor for uh, you know kind of. I, I do terrible things when I'm drunk sort of thing. I mean, it, it's very easy to kind of uh, imagine it as, as a, a sort of commentary on uh, what alcoholism really does to people's lives and what it drives people to do um, sort of thing. And so, so it is this kind of, uh, I mean, you can view it that way if you choose to, I don't think mm-hmm. that's necessarily required by the film. I, I'm, I'll tell you what I, what I find really fascinating about this is uh, exactly what was lacking in the, in the lodger is all the people around Krieger. And that is um, particularly Linda Darnell, who I think is yeah. uh, is just magnetic in this and um, completely uh, believable as this character. Um, she's definitely doing this this uh, overtly kind of film fatal kind of role. Yeah. Um, but you really get a very clear sense of who all these people are and what their relationships are to one another, and wh- what they mean to each other. That you know, Linda Darnell's character Annetta is not just a uh, you know, she's not just like conniving bitch. She's uh, she's in love with the Mickey guy. You know, she, mm-hmm. she's she's kind of like that's the real relationship in her life. And she's kind of like, yeah, I'll manipulate this guy. I mean, I'll, I'll kind of you know I'll kind of promise him things that aren't not real. But you know, I'm you know I'm doing it because I love this other guy and because I'm I'm building my career. I don't even necessarily. I mean, she certainly doesn't deserve to be killed for what she's done. No. You know, but I, I don't even necessarily. I mean. She, she's an actress or she's a, she's a singer who's trying to make a name for herself. And if she can kind of manipulate this guy and like, it's not a good thing to do, but I'm kind of like, yeah, I kind of understand, you know, she's not a terrible person. You know, I don't, I don't see her as like, like this awful, awful human being. You you can understand the motivation given the, especially given the time period that it's presented in where Mm -hmm. a, a female actress, the singer actress trying to advance her career, you know that that's definitely an understandable avenue that some might take at that point. Yeah, and just saying, well, there's this really talented, you know, literally composer who, who does exist. I mean, we we can't ignore the class issues here. You know, um, who definitely exists in this kind of upper class. He's doing these like fancy concertos. I just need to, a few bars of music to to sell my um, to sell my songs and and to be able to kind of make a career as a singer. Um, why not kind of grift this guy a little bit and, and, um, you know, like he'll never, he will never notice the loss that, you know, it's only because this guy becomes fixated on her that, that it becomes an issue. And if he had, um, you know, (laughs) I mean, she is definitely manipulating him. I don't want to pretend like that's not happening. Um, but the, the scale of her sin is not in any sense like, you know, commensurate with, with the way she ends yeah, up being. Not, not, worth, not worth being strangled to death for, definitely. No, um, no, no. And 
With a she's, thuggy chord. I think we're going to have to talk about the fucking thuggy chord at some point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I'll just say Darnell's incredibly sexy in this film. Uh, oh uh, you, you talk about the can-can stuff that the uh, actress is doing in The Lodger. Here, mm-hmm. it's even more sexualized. Here, you get you get that opening shot with her uh, her legs just being exposed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Really good, <laughs> really good. Uh, I believe I believe Wikipedia described this film, and this is what made me uh, seek it out as uh, oh, the film where uh, Linda Darnell shows her full legs for the first time. Yeah. Went, oh well, that's something I need to seek out. Um, so you know, I, I apologize if I had a, a slightly less than uh, perfectly austere reason for for wanting to appreciate this film. Is like Linda Darnell's legs. Uh, she's brilliant, and I would like to see. What, what she looked like. Um, yeah. yeah, no, she's really good. Oh, yeah, I, I was going to mention that, uh, unfortunately, when you look at this film, you see all all the three leads in this film all met tragic ends. We already talked about Laird Krieger. Linda Darnell, of course, unfortunately, also met a tragic end. Uh, she got in a house fire. Yeah, uh, an I, ironic end, apparently, because she was scared of fire from, from what I've uh, read. Uh, which do you, is, do you know what her most famous role is, or the thing that most people would like connect to? No, she was in Zero Hour from 1957, which okay. is essentially the film that got remade as a comedy by uh, the Zucker Brothers as Airplane. Oh, really? Um, if you watch Zero Hour, I mean, it's literally Airplane without the jokes. It's, I mean, they, they oh. literally just lifted the script and turned it into a comedy. You know, they huh. just added in the the slapsticky humor. Um, I, I watched enough of it to get like, that's exactly what they did. But, um, you know, it's almost impossible to watch now, but that was, uh, that was her in 57. So, you know, 13 years later. Um, and she had, you know, she was, she had aged. I mean, she was, she was definitely not the kind of dynamic, uh, well, presence that she was, uh, in the she early had, 40s. Uh, she had struggled with alcoholism and put on weight apparently. So that had affected her career. Unfortunately, George Sanders, also a sad case. His career, of course, went on for quite a while afterwards, but apparently he had uh, gotten to the point in the 60s where he was starting to experience the onset of dementia and committed suicide. So there, there, there's definitely a lot of sadness actually connected between these two films. <laughs> way, way to bring this podcast episode about two serial killers down, Lee. You know. Yeah, I'm sorry. but uh, And also, I, I should mention, uh, getting on maybe to a more positive note, more influences this film might have had. I kind of think this film might have had a lot of influence on uh, the Italian giallo genre. Uh, after yeah. this, because the whole the whole sound setting off the killer thing just kind of screams as one of those plot points of uh, uh, there. There was always these really obtuse, weird uh, sort of plot points that set off killers and giallo films. And then just looking at the opening kill, the point of view of the killer coming after the uh, shopkeeper wasn't the first time it was done, of course, because we spoke in the lodger. We spoke of uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, doing that in his version of the lodger. Uh, for the opening kill, but very brutally done, almost in the, in this film, like very um... one one of the one of the points that the that opening kill, that opening shot. I mean, it's not quite the opening shot, but it's basically the opening shot of the uh-huh. film. One of the most brilliant shots in the film of in a, in a film that's full of brilliant, you know, direction. Not just because it, it is, um, it does feel startlingly modern, but it is very much drawn out of, and this is kind of where I connect it back. It is very much drawn out of that '30s expressionism. 
stuff. Um, it's just done through this kind of like POV kind of handheldy kind of thing. Um, this also differentiates one of the big reasons it differentiates from the lodger is that the lodger kind of plays with this idea of like, is this guy the killer or not? Yeah. Whereas in this film, there's no question. And you know, you, you know who the killer is in the like third shot of the film. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, and look, there's there's our hero, Laird Krieger, who is like literally burning this guy alive. You know, um, and that's that's another thing. Fire surrounds this guy every time he goes into his uh, murder states. I mean, it starts off there's fire at the the kill in the shop. Fire surrounding him when he's uh, he has these interactions with that guy in the street there, who's like, uh, what what the fuck is he even? Is he like a rat catcher or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's so much um, there's so much intricacy here, and I and I think that um, again, where the lodger feels a little, and I and I hate kind of talking about. I mean, the lodger is about its tone and about its mood, and is about kind mm-hmm. of setting a scene, whereas uh, Hangover Square is about the people and about these kind of small characters, and it is about the mood and it is about like the cinematography, but it's it's fundamentally about the relationship between these. Um, really, these two, the, these three people, but but really, particularly the the Darnell uh, and um, you know the Linda Darnell and and Larry Krieger relationship is is core to this film. And you spend, I mean, rewatching it today because I actually have seen this film three times now because I watched it originally, then I watched it before we were going to record last week, and mm-hmm. then I watched it today, and um, I had forgotten just how much screen time this relationship takes. I mean, you know, she doesn't, she's not dead until like almost an hour into the film and the film's yeah. only an hour and like 27 minutes long mm-hmm. or something like that. So, um, you know, you're, you're basically talking about, you know, the, the, from about 15 minutes until about, so, so like 45 minutes of this film is basically just the relationship between these two characters. Well, it really, it really builds to her death and that's kind of the real major set piece of the film too, is yeah. that her death and the subsequent disposal of the body. Yeah. <laughs> Which again, I, I really want Paul to see this film just to, yeah. I, I would love to hear what he has to say about that sequence. Um, because I think it's haunting. I think it's it's really impressively done, um, particularly you know at this time period to have like this. This is a very morbid, a very um, macabre you know kind of idea of. This uh, is, uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is uh, Hitchcock before Hitchcock was known for being Hitchcock. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, and I'll just set this up for uh, the people. I mean, you know, spoilers. Fuck you if you haven't watched this film yet. He's going to the Guy Fox celebration where the idea is you have this bonfire and you take all these effigies of Guy Fox and throw them into the fire and burn them. So you have all these Guy Fox masks um, on these effigies. He decides to put a mask on the body of Linda Darnell's character um, and, and try to pass it off as an effigy and throw it on the bonfire. And he's the last guy to do it. Basically he, he, he struggles carrying her body up to the top of the bonfire, which is probably about 15, 20 feet fucking tall. And you get this little shot of the mask starting to slip off and you almost think, okay, this is going to undo him. People are going to see this shit and it's going to catch him, but no, and it doesn't happen. He, he gets away with it. He throws her body on the fire and, and he barely escapes the fucking bonfire starting and catching him on fire. But I, I was just watching. I was like, that is a total Hitchcock kind of shot like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, her face being exposed, and you see kind of the the bottom of her, like her lips, uh-huh. and the bottom of her of her chin, the bottom of you see her chin and her lips, yeah. and uh, 
he throws the body on and and you get the shot of his face as he's doing that. You get, you kind of see not just the, you know, the kind of performative like grief or, or whatever, but you see the, uh, the sense of uh, just the physical weight of having carried her body that far and, and needing to get rid of this thing. And, uh, you know, and this is where I feel like the, the kind of the, the method, the, the, the kind of the plot device of the sound and of the, like he's, he's in this fugue state actually cheapens it for me. I mean, I think it would be more effective if this was something he was kind of actively choosing to do. Like if he had Mm -hmm. realized he was, um, uh, he was doing these things and then realized he needed to get rid of the body and then had, had chosen to do this. Um, it's, it's that sort of thing that I, it's kind of hard not to talk about Hitchcock a little bit, but, uh, you know, psycho, you know, the, the Norman Bates yeah. character, uh, Anthony Perkins kind of uh, bars from that same thing. Like he knows what he's doing when he's getting rid of Janet Lee's body in psycho. And, and, uh, that, that kind of psychological realism makes it more compelling. And I, I almost wish, I mean, I, I do wish actually that this had been kind of rewritten almost to just get rid of that, the, the kind of piercing noise thing entirely and had been written as, you know, so, this guy uh, commits the crime and then, you know, doesn't know what to would, do from there, you know. So would you rather have him been like Norman Bates where he has the uh, sort of do he has a sort of split personality where the, the dominant mother personality comes to the forefront and and uh, and directs him to do these things? Or uh, would he have just been he's just straight up a killer who knows what he's doing all along? I think I think I would rather it have been the latter. I mean, I for me, I almost would rather just get rid of the the kind of blind rage aspect entirely, or the 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 kind of the the you know the killing at the beginning as as compelling as that shot is. Um, mm-hmm. I almost wish it had been. Oh, I get stressed. I I you know I kind of feel like I I need some kind of thing and instead of like prescribing medicine or whatever. The the doctor just says, oh go to the music hall, chill out, get some relaxation. He meets this girl. He builds a relationship with this woman in his mind and then finds out that she's, you know, marrying somebody else and then, you know, kind of kills her in a, in a rage and then has to figure out what to do with the body, like to, to remove that element entirely and just turn it into a story about the psychology of, of these characters together. Um, because for me, at least the, the, the kind of, at least just in terms of shoe leather, the, um, you know, he, he's walking back and forth between lots of different apartments mm-hmm. in, uh, in lots of different houses. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of like kind of screen time that's just taken up and, uh, you know, him greeting people along the street and that sort of thing. And I feel like you could um, tell a compelling version of this that dispenses with that kind of fundamental um you know, kind of, kind of the, the the kind of mental break stuff uh, altogether. But then you lose the hangover metaphor, so you kind of depend on, um, you know, how you want to treat it. But um, that, that's kind of that's kind of I I like the Darnell and uh, Krieger relationship so much, and I love that dynamic between those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, that I um, in, in kind of classic noir style. I, I wish the horror elements were downplayed a little bit more, and it was pushed more towards the noir, but um, the, the funeral pyre stuff is, is just uh, yeah. uh, amazing. Um, I mean, the last, watch, even just watching the last 20 minutes, aside from the rest of the film, and you would think this is a brilliant film, without even knowing anything at all about the relationship and, and these characters and all the other stuff that's going on. So, um, sorry, I just, I rewrote the film. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> you know. but yeah, yeah that, that last sequence is startling. Like, I didn't expect it to happen, and I was just like, oh my god, this is this is Roger Corman's pose films. They end the exact same way where everything just goes batshit. And he's, and he just 
Krieger just sells it so well. He's just there playing his 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 piece on the piano, and you can see he's finally at peace. Like he he finally gets to the point where he always wanted to be throughout the entire film, right. and it just happens to be <laughs> just happens to be the moment where the flames are going to creep him and burn him to death. You know, but uh, oh, I what I, what I find is um, interesting about that that final sequence is it takes its time. You know, mm-hmm. this, these are these are not films. These are not long films. Um, you know, this is this is eighty seven minutes long. I think the Lodger is similar, eighty five minutes, eighty six minutes, yeah. something like that. Um, what I, what I find fascinating is that the 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 director takes his time to really give us some some kind of smooth crane shots. There's some real like you watch this guy play the piano for a while. Like this mm-hmm. isn't this isn't like oh there are a few shots and then we kind of move on to this concerto is something that he's been building his whole life towards to some degree it's something we've been building the whole film towards and it's a beautiful piece of music and um, if Lee does not include this piece of music as our as our going out well, uh, music, it, it, yeah it's going to be and, and by the way the all the music here was done by Bernard Herman in one of yep. his earlier soundtrack things in Lionel Newman and. Um, I'm just going to warn people right now listening. I'm going to include the whole sort of 10 minute piece at the end. So there's no, I was, I was uh, watching it like literally right before we started recording. I was watching the last 10 minutes of this film and, and thinking there's no way not to just include Mm -hmm. the whole thing. Like, like Lee, Lee should just bite the bullet and say, okay, there's a 10 minute sequence at the end and you should, a, you should watch the film now. Just stop listening to me now and watch the film. And then, listen to the rest of this and then listen to the, the, that, that music again. Cause it's, it's so amazing. It's such a, I mean, I kind of have the, that, that, those first few notes in my head. Um, just talking about it. Um, a, a young Steven Sondheim saw this film he was young, uh, and, uh, actually saw this film twice. And uh, just to memorize the, those first few notes, like how they're played on the piano and he could play it. Like that was, that was one of his uh, early influences was this film actually. Um, I found that in my, in my kind of little bit of research I did. The uh, uh, direction is helped by the fact that Laird Krieger, uh, although he is not actually the, the soundtrack is, is overdubbed, but he could actually play the piano. So he could actually play the, the, the music, so um, there was this uh, kind of kind of uh, you didn't have to cut away. You mm-hmm. could kind of do these these shots where he's clearly playing the the piece, and not have to use cutaways. You could you could just kind of watch his performance and him play the piano at the same time, and kind of um, get that sense. I think that um, something that is uh, prominent in the way that people kind of talk about this film. Those that do, I think this is one film that really is like uh, underappreciated, um, at least from from kind of what I found online. But um. I think one thing that's that's uh, really uh, nice to see is that um, the score is so well integrated into yeah. the film in general, but particularly in the in that last that last sequence is just virtuoso, and uh, I think it's uh, anybody that has a love of cinema at all should see this film just for the last uh, you know fifteen minutes or so. I totally agree. I don't know if I have anything else I need to say about this one. Honestly, <laughs> I think we. <laughs> I think um, we cover. Um, I, I will. I will mention uh, Cameron Sullivan made a comment. Who he was kind of wondering if we uh, could um, say if this film was heavily inspired by other films of the respective decade. And I and I kind of wonder if really that's kind of the opposite, where these films kind of maybe inspired other films to a certain degree. Like I, I we I think we mentioned that these films were definitely inspired by like Fritz Lang and then 
Fritz Lang was inspired by Alfred Hitchcock, probably, um, as far as the genre conventions go for these kind of films. But um, well, you've got you've got to think they all come out of this um, again the kind of German expressionist stuff, which um, mm-hmm. you know kind of comes out of uh, not just. You know, we kind of think of that as being 30s, but you know that that came out of the you know kind of art films of the of the 20s. Um, you know, really, really, this all comes out of even like going back to like D. W. Griffith. There's stuff in like Intolerance that's just as uh, kind of harsh lighting and that sort of thing. And uh, noir, I think, is fascinating. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about noir since this is our kind of last real mm-hmm. noir we're gonna talk about for a while. Noir is fascinating because it's such a an aesthetic that then became a series of kind of plot devices that then fed back into the aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, even, um, you know, probably the last of the, well, not the last, but even like the third man, kind of the use of like the long shadows and, and, and that sort of thing. And the, the streets of Vienna um, is very much, uh, you know, taken from these same kind of ideas, but you're also talking about, you know, we you talk about M that's in 31 and then you're talking about these that are 13 years later and shot in English, and, you know, kind of later in the sound era. Um, and then we're talking about the stuff from, like, the 40s and the 50s, and even even down to Blast of Silence from, from 61. Mm-hmm. And you do see a progression of, like, the way that the, the films are kind of treating these. We didn't do them in order, but, um, you know, you see, like, you connect M to Blast of Silence, and then you go, well... Hangover Square kind of is just halfway in between those two, you know, yeah. where Blast of Silence, you've got the, um, uh, what's the, the, the character's name? Um, Ralphie? Uh, in, in, in Blast of Silence? Yeah. yeah. Frankie the, Bono. The, the, oh, the, no, the, Ralphie's the, the fat guy, yeah. The, yeah, the fat guy, you know. Uh, well, you see uh, so you see Frankie Bono, who is uh, kind of aping the stuff, who's kind of aping the private eyes that we see in uh you know, things like uh, the, the Chandler things that we talked about. But then you see, like, the, the Ralphie character, who is um, kind of almost the, the kind of comic, more kind of grounded version of, of what Larry Krieger was playing in, in these yeah. two films, because you see him as, as kind of connected to this idea of he's, uh, he's kind of dirty, he's kind of, you know, not, not necessarily a, 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 a nice guy, but he's, he's not like a serial killer. But you see uh, very much hints of the same kind of performance. And, um, you know, the, the idea that this is uh, not kind of a continuum, the idea that it has to be one thing is, is something that, uh, I don't know, it's hard, sorry, I'm talking too much again, but uh, I think it's hard for us today to sink ourselves into this era and say, what what's really going on for audiences at the time? Because we kind of see them in isolation. And so I think for me, part of what I've learned from going through this, because I've always kind of loved noir for its aesthetics, but actually watching a bunch of it kind of at a time has really kind of shown me how much all of this uh, is a school of, of, uh, uh, of aesthetics and a school of filmmaking rather than like, Oh, there's one filmmaker like Fritz Lang is a genius. He was a genius, but not necessarily like he didn't invent everything. And, and, you know, um, Brahms is a genius here. I mean, this this final sequence in Hangover Square is just one of those great film sequences, like in anything. But you can't like you can't say like, oh, he just invented that out of whole cloth. It, it comes out of this this school of thought. It's also like once you see a bunch of noir, I think I lose a little bit of respect for Hitchcock. Not that he isn't a genius, but you know, Hitchcock gets a lot of credit um, partly because of the Truffaut book, like like you know for inventing some of this stuff and Hitchcock definitely didn't invent this stuff. I mean, this, yeah. he's coming out of a school just as much as everybody else was. 
he was just one of the best people in that school. And then he went on and did, did other stuff in the, in the color era and that sort of thing. So um, Hitchcock managed to, um, he managed to draw a lot of these things together. Like there was definitely the natural talent. There was definitely inventiveness in his stuff, but he, he drew from a lot of, like th- this is a guy who was making silent movies. So he's been for, he's been along since the start of movies basically. And, he he drew a lot from the stuff he saw going along and he implemented it better than anyone else to a certain degree that that that's more his claim to fame i think than in anything cuz you're right he a lot of his stuff is not original but he is the most well known because he implemented it to such a degree that uh, it just sort of caught on well and was, he was a popular filmmaker he was he, yeah. his films made money and then he had the TV show. And I, and I think, again, it's hard to look back and then put it back into its proper historical context. And, you know, from a from a new critical approach, it's not necessarily like you have to. I mean, I think you can enjoy Hitchcock or enjoy Hangover Square and kind of go, oh, I like it's it's not hard to watch Hangover Square and enjoy it on its merits regardless without having it in the context. Mm-hmm. But understanding it within its context and understanding it within not just historical, but within the artistic context really deepens the film experience. I think, I think like watching Darnell's performance, for instance, and understanding like this is, this is not the way people like, this is not how women acted in films in 1945. Yeah. Linda Darnell's doing something really, really special here. She um, is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just Krieger's brilliant. We can all agree. He's brilliant. Yeah. But, uh, Linda Darnell, she is just mesmerizing to me. I just, I love her and, and um, everything I've seen with her, I've, I've loved her and even if I didn't love the film. But uh, I think this is uh, one of her great roles and one of her great performances and just a great film. Um, I totally agree. Totally agree. Just to summarize sort of my response to uh, Cameron's uh, sort of question there. Um, I don't think necessarily um, there were big influences uh on this on this film from films around the decade, like I I think we kind of outlined the kind of uh, kind of through line from Alfred Hitchcock and Fritz Lang to this. I, I think we made a good case for that. But there's a lot in this film, the well, both these films, The Lodger and Hangover Square, that uh, I think I already kind of explained that uh, I feel like even though I don't have solid evidence of this, like, you know, concrete evidence of this, this is all basically speculation. I think these films are kind of unheralded landmarks of inspiration to a lot of films 20 years uh, from now, from from when these films were made, I, I just see so much in the Giallo and uh, the Corman films in the '60s from these films that I can't help but think that these films were kind of really the sort of germination of those uh, those kind of genres to some degree. Um, I, I could be totally wrong. I mean. Maybe Roger Corman never saw these fucking films. Maybe the Italian directors who well, did the, the shallows the, never saw them. The, the Lodger is such a the Lodger in particular. I think Hangover Square maybe got overlooked, but the Lodger was such a financial success, and it was such like kind of based on that Jack the Ripper thing mm-hmm. um, that I would I would find it hard to believe that uh, filmmakers fifteen years later or ten years later wouldn't have. Uh, wouldn't have at least seen it, had it in the back of their mind. Um, and I and I think that, um, again, uh, Brahms, I mean, I, I really want to see more that this guy did because he's yeah. such a, 
a phenomenal director. I mean, and it may be that the last 15 minutes of Hangover Square are his masterpiece. And, you know, everything else is kind of, yeah, it's, it's fine. But it's so, like, it, it just, it so prefigures so much of the stuff that we saw later on in, um, in the 50s and the 60s. Um, in terms of uh, the way that uh, this kind of counterpoint of, of music and violence, of, of you know, I mean, you know, the, the the final ten minutes remind me a lot of Inglorious Bastards, and I guarantee you, fucking Tarantino's <laughs> seen this, you know, yeah, like, probably, yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, I and I and I don't say that in a negative way. I just mean like, you know, we we tend to kind of, and and I think that this is also I, we were talking about my. Uh, my, my coworker who doesn't see old films. And, you know, I think that we do kind of beyond a certain point, we kind of go, well, all films from the forties kind of all look and sound the same. And they're kind of, you know, yeah. like it's, we kind of get an idea of what a 1940s noir kind of looks and feels like, but they're, you know, at the time you've got a lot of individual filmmakers and a lot of individual um, writers and directors and performers and, and everything who are doing their own individual work. And I think that um, it's, it's kind of unfortunate to some degree, I mean that's understandable, but it's kind of unfortunate to some degree that we feel like homogenized homogenized it in our um, kind of cultural memory. And um, one of the things that I'm I'm trying to do is I follow some uh, some like Twitter feeds from people. There's a there's a Twitter feed called the Nitrate Diva, uh, okay. which I would recommend that people follow. Um, this is a, a woman who uh, kind of um, she's a, she's an expert on uh, like a basically film noir, forties film, and and uh, that sort of thing, and. Uh, really uh like retweets a lot of really cool stuff and and uh shares a lot of cool images from this era and uh you know talks a lot about these these kind of films and i'm uh you know she's given me a list of a lot of stuff that's that's kind of on my short list to watch because uh it, it just it looks uh kind of fascinating so uh check that out that's, that's a twitter recommendation the nitrate diva i'll uh, try to give you a maybe i'm sure lee's about to find it and he'll give you a link but um yeah, yeah, we'll 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 link it in the show notes for sure. Fuck yes, um, that's great. Uh, <laughs> Lee just looked it up and went fuck. <laughs> I actively hate people who think that everything in the forties and fifties and later than that or earlier than that is homogenized because that's fucking bullshit. Um, I think if anything, our sort of uh, exploration into noir and uh, I, I guess we could even argue that we started with M and we just did the sort of 50th Dawn of the Dead show as this sort of a one-off. And uh, I would, I would include M into our sort of uh, noir crime series that we did. I think we kind of sort of explored that the fact that a lot of this shit is incredibly diverse. There's a lot of interconnections. There's a lot of influences uh, between the films. It's not homogenized at all. There, there, there is a lot of fuck. There's just a lot of difference between a lot of the films we watched, and there's there's a lot of nuances. There's a lot of differences that just come out in every film we've watched and uh, talked about in this sort of series, and. Uh, I'm really fucking happy that we did it because uh, we we really dug into a lot of stuff. You you uh, mentioned brought up a lot of stuff uh, for us to watch that uh, otherwise I probably never would have watched, and uh, it opened my eyes to a lot of stuff in the genre that I actually thought I knew some stuff about. And watching some films that you recommended even opened my eyes more. So uh, 
it was a lot of fucking fun to uh, get into all this stuff. Well, I, I do this podcast just for you to tell me how brilliant I am. So thank you. <laughs> um, but I, you know, for me, it's uh it's very much a, uh, you know, like, like a back and forth because, uh, you know, ultimately we all have our things that we know and the things that we kind of talk about and uh, the, the eras that we're interested in and the genres, genres that we're interested in. And then part of what this show is, at least for me is, sharing it with each other and if other people are listening like that's great but like this just gives me like this just forces me to sit and watch some stuff that i wouldn't necessarily otherwise like oh yeah i'm really looking forward to watching like 80 slashers but yeah there were some great 80 slashers i mean just before dawn like i'm like holy shit just before dawn that was great so i'm really happy um you know finding hangover square was like lee needs to fucking see this movie like, that was you know <laughs> that was on my mind oh yeah we're gonna do hangover square um and I really like that this episode has become um, almost like a meditation about noir and about our experience with noir because I think noir gets a little bit overlooked among uh, people kind of talking about stuff. I think people are really used to kind of talking about like stuff from the 70s and they're very used to kind of talking. But there's some really great stuff here from the 30s and 40s and 50s that uh, I think people really do overlook Um Probably because it's in black and white. I think I think people just have this kind of bias against yeah. black and white, which is fucking bullshit. Because I fucking love black and white. You know, that's that's a rant for another day. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll leave it at that. And yeah, we're we're going to be doing Inherent Vice next week. Uh, that will be the sort of cap off to our noir crime series. And then, of yeah. course, we're gonna we're gonna be going to uh, some sci-fi films for a little while, maybe like two episodes or something like that. We'll just do a couple of sci-fi films, and then we're gonna get straight into fucking uh, more sex comedies, which has sort of been. Uh, I think our sex comedy series was the one that really sort of gained us attention. That was the first series that really sort of uh, got our podcast out there and got people listening to it. Strangely enough. Uh. <laughs> it's a thing, right? You know, I mean, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, hey, it's all my fault. I was the one who's like, let's do some sex comedies. And then suddenly, you know, you're like, all right, fine. And then people start listening to us. Maybe you should listen to me more, Lee. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a thing. Uh, no. Yeah. Lee, Lee, Lee does the <laughs> perfect amount of listening to me where he listens to me with half an ear and then does what the fuck he wants to do. This is his podcast. It's if it's successful or not, it's because Lee has has made it happen. All I do is uh, drink too much and talk too much on this show. Yeah. So, but I, I will say with the sex comedy series, you basically just sort of tapped into uh, my perverted interests that I otherwise would not expound upon. <laughs> Unless I, I think had I've a... done enough expounding upon my perverted interests on this show. Um, but <laughs> speaking of that, next week uh, we have uh, Inherent Vice coming up, and there is a uh, an actress with a bit part in that who had another career. And uh, since I have been challenged uh, in terms of uh, bringing up uh, you know the levels of my perversity, um, I didn't get a chance to write it up this week. But next week I will summarize the career of a certain actress. And uh, I will definitely do more to pervert this show than any horse cock ever could. That's that's my goal. Okay, so it's going to be next week because I, I thought I was going to put a put aside some time for you to talk this week uh, about that actress. But uh, if it's going to be next week, great. It'll be next week, and it might be included in my plot summary. We'll see if I if I do it in the plot summary just as an aside, or if I uh, do it separately. We'll we'll see. How I how, when I want to end up writing that plot summary. If uh, you know you want to listen to me talk for ten minutes about this film uninterrupted, 
Um, I'll do a little like three minute bit in the middle because this this plot is uh, I already am dreading writing this plot summary. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> this this might be another big sleep. Um, just to, yeah. just to let people know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, look forward to that, guys. Uh, it's going to be a big sort of finale to our uh, little initial drop into the series, and it should be a lot of fun. Daniel, tell people about not only your Doctor Who podcast, but your Red Dwarf podcast that you're doing now. Well, it's probably easier. Uh, so I am. Uh, I have I have kind of started a new website. You can go to oispaceman.com. You will be able to find all of our future content there. I think They Must Be Destroyed on Site is going to start to be posted there as well. Yes. Um, starting, you know, in the next, maybe not this episode, but going forward, you know, probably this episode as well. So, you know, we'll see. But um, just go to oyspaceman.com. I have done a Doctor Who podcast with my wife for over two years. It's highly political and lefty, and uh, we talk about sex a bunch, and we use a lot of dirty words. But we're also going to start doing that with other properties, and uh, it's going to be a little bit more dynamic. We're doing a Red Dwarf kind of subheading, and that one's called Searching for Fushal. We did the first episode. We've had a lot of positive response. And uh, we talked about Chasing Amy, the Kevin Smith film from 1997. And, um, man, that's an intense episode. That is that is pretty crazy. Um, I, I That was hard for us to even record. But... Um, if you uh, if you want to talk about the gender and sexual politics of chasing Amy, I think that's something you should probably listen to, and I would love to hear what people have to say about it. But you can uh, find links to all our stuff at oispaceman.com, and the old website is oispaceman.libson.com if you're listening to this and I haven't gotten everything kind of moved over yet. So yeah. go check it out. And, and all i got to say is that Chasing Amy episode makes uh, the Kevin Smith episode we did for our sex comedy series look like a piece of shit. <laughs> and I and I totally because I planned that Kevin Smith episode we did, and my wife just ruined everything we did for that one. Um, it just it just like basically just wrap that up in a little ball and throw it aside because uh, we got way more intense on that. So yeah, but uh, very good stuff. If you want to find us, of course, where we are on Facebook, that is the best place to get in contact with us. Get your comments read. Get your suggestions heralded for the gods to uh, uh, piss upon. And uh, you'll get the trailer at the end to tell you where to go and find all this stuff. And we're going to go out, of course, on the the Bernard Herrmann soundtrack for Hangover Square, which is going to be very long, but it's going to be 10 minutes. And, you know, if you're into that, listen to it. Thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me. We're going to end this now. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For links to the host's other stuff, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can find links to the YouTube version of our podcast, our iTunes page, as well as our Facebook group, which is the best way to get in touch with us and leave feedback. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you!